All right, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your Uncle Jimmy coming to you live from the Rock and Roll Garage somewhere in the United States, somewhere in the middle of a coronavirus quarantine. Just like you, I'm sitting around doing nothing, so I thought that we would do a longer version of a podcast today and talk to you about another one of the automobile makers of the world. This is a pretty important one as well. This one is Mercedes-Benz. This is part two, actually. Part one, uh, I don't know, are you going to pair them together? Uh, no, actually, I think I am going to release them separately because uh, this one will probably be done by this week. And uh, part one, we absolutely hated part one. <laughs> and then the file hated us, too. So uh, yes. that one's not coming out. That one we are going to be redoing. Okay. Let me redo that one and we'll redo Volvo and and then we'll... Uh pick some other ones to do sure why not yeah absolutely the too long didn't read on episode one is former german gunsmiths start attaching engines to carriages and inadvertently start the first car company on planet earth that car company then gets wrapped up working for the state as the state hurdles towards fascism and mercedes-benz unintentionally becomes one of the ultimate symbols of evil <laughs> and not the kind of evil from, like, Austin Powers, <laughs> where Dr. Evil becomes his brother. No. Well, uh, actually, Benz did make a comeback, though. It's actually considered one of the finer automobiles made, and, and now a lot of people actually covet them, which is good. Uh, and they, they deserve that. I think that they were just really, really good at what they did. They just got uh, put under the boot heel of some really nasty people. And fortunately... Fortunately, we were able to ouster them from uh, from the from the planet. Really, uh, they're dead. Hopefully, <laughs> most of them anyway. I would think that they're all dead <laughs> now. If they were in their 40s and 50s, in the 40s and 50s, and uh, unless they're 120 some odd years old, they're gone. So, uh, and the rebound that Mercedes Benz went through was uh, exa- really it was a blueprint for the rebound that Germany made, and it's a good thing really for a lot of people that the Germans are uh, respectable again. And, and I mean that in, in the most sincere manner. I don't, you know, I might make some comments on this particular podcast where I disparage the Germans, but they're a very technically and engineering savvy people, extremely so. And oh, have, yeah, absolutely. And they have taught the world a hell of a lot of things about building cars and uh, sometimes in America we don't listen too well and we have to learn the hard way. But they have really figured out pretty much everything that goes on uh, with everything, really. I mean, they have these uh, these very strict industrial standards, the DIN, the Deutschland Industrial Normals. And, and they're rock solid based on facts, based on uh, precision, based on how to do things the proper way. And uh, a lot of uh, car manufacturers, not just in the United States, uh, but in other parts of the world, uh, tend to uh, stray from these standards and then ultimately pay the price in poor quality or uh, poor uh, durability or even just poor performance all the way around. But uh, not the Germans and especially not Mercedes-Benz. You'll find that... uh, to this day and even from the beginning they've always tried to build the finest machines possible and you know as we talk about their involvement in world war ii there was really nothing they could do about that as far as uh you know 
it's an old real estate adage, location, location, location. They were in Germany. and <laughs> No, really, seriously, the Germans yeah. had uh, appropriated everything that was in Germany. I mean, if you made... You know, if you if you know, whatever it was, if you really, made later hose and you were now making Hugo Boss slacks for the SS. Yeah, or like. you know, parachutes for the uh, for the Nazi paratroopers, and you know, you know, if you built boats, you know, you were making landing craft, or you know, if you if you built engines, you suddenly your engines were being reappropriated to power Panzers or Stukas or possibly even motorcycles or whatever, and they all had uh, they all had these crazy helmet wearing. Uh, fanatics riding them into battle and a lot of times and ultimately not riding not riding them out of battle not winning uh, although they did <laughs> hey the effort they put in was was supreme and it took a supreme effort to ouster them and uh, it's a uh, it's a testament really and I don't want to pay homage where homage is due as far as uh, Mercedes-Benz goes and and the companies that became Volkswagen and Audi and BMW and everyone else in Central Europe there where Germany is that manufactures uh, peacetime goods now uh, but they uh, in, are, are enjoying success and have enjoyed success because we had a complete rethinking of how to handle a a conquered population, a conquered country. Yeah, absolutely. This is what's really interesting, too, is because of the way that we treated Germany after World War II allowed them to make the transition a lot easier. Whereas you saw with the Russian part of Germany, it bounced back, but it didn't bounce back nearly as fast as areas like Stuttgart and Munich. Yeah, it took 50 plus years. Oh, yeah. And some parts, I mean, some parts are still kind of, you know, backwards ass. Yeah. I didn't want to say it, but uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm, I'm sure that some of them would agree that uh, having the Russians uh, foster and and control your your production and your innovation and your manufacturing and your research and development uh, really, honestly, let's be frank about it. That couldn't have been a good thing. It couldn't have been a good thing at all. I mean, here is a group of people who are really only good at reverse engineering shit after somebody's built something. And, uh, I don't, I don't actually believe that that's true anymore. I, I, I know that there's some, there's probably some brilliant Russian, uh, scientists and engineers and, and those sorts of people. But early on there wasn't. And so, and, and I mean, all you have to do is look at Russian automotive output to see that how um, basically retarded it was. I mean, <laughs> just to call a spade. A spade. I mean, look at some of the stuff. I mean, if you ever research, yeah. no, I'm serious. If you if you ever research the stuff that they built, it was oh, it was awful. It was oh, so it was bad. Worse than awful. Yeah, it was a capital letter A W E awful. It was. It, and, and to have these same people telling you as a German how to build something, regardless of what you or your ancestors did to them during the war, after the war, having them tell you how to do things is, is like, it's got to be really, honestly, the worst case scenario. It's got to be like working working at a really menial job. But you're a genius. Like, you know, you, you scored 1,600 on your SAT and you're working in a Burger King. Yeah. You know, you're asking people if they want fries with that. It's, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. You know, it's it's like taking it's like it's like figuring out how to handle your personal finances from your children and they're five and six. You know, it's like and they're great. Yeah, just and your yeah, last just, name is Madoff. Yeah, well, you know, that, there's that too. You know, that's kind of 
Uh, oh yeah, there's there's a lot here, but all right, we're going back to Stuttgart. We are going back to 1945 right now, and uh, okay, so we had a little bit of a technical glitch where Uncle Jimmy had to re-download Audacity, and in the meantime, I was looking at some of the aerial photography of after we bombed Stuttgart, which is the home of Mercedes Benz and Porsche and Bosch, and SKF had a factory there as well. One of the things I did want to add. Uh, to that is that uh, we had we had to have two world wars to straighten us all out. And after the first world war in which the Germans uh, capitulated, uh, there was a treaty of Versailles and, and not to go in too deeply into the politics of that. Uh, we reacted very poorly to the fact that we were victorious. And I say we, I mean, and we mean France nations. and Britain. <laughs> yeah. no, we were actually well, pretty know, cool about it. Well, you know, you say we, it's almost as if you and I were there, you know, and, it, and I don't want to say that because it, it sounds wrong to me anyway. But uh, we treated them uh, very poorly and we tried to force them to pay reparations and it made them very bitter and it made them so bitter that they turned around and embraced a gentleman who wanted to rule the world and said, yeah, fuck yeah, let's go do it. Let's, you know. It's, you know, third time's a charm kind of deal. You know, it's like, look, let's just and and believe it or not, folks, if you're not a familiar with the events that occurred during World War Two, the Germans came very close to succeeding in that war. There was uh, maybe one or two mistakes that uh, they made. And I say they I mean, Hitler himself personally. And if he hadn't made those mistakes, we we might all be. Uh, speaking german now and i'm not this is not a joke okay uh they're they were technically superior at the time uh they are really still pretty technically superior to us now even but then they were using the uh, technical superiority to beat our ass and and they ended up uh like i said they made a few mistakes and we were able to overwhelm them uh and and I say we again, I'm talking about the Allied forces, which includes the Russia and uh, England and France and the United States and actually several other countries as well. Uh, but it was a concerted effort and, and it, was a, it was a worldwide effort. And what they did after the war, and uh, I'll, I'll get through this as quickly as I can. I know this is really has nothing to do with building cars and maybe you're bored by now and have already switched over to Joe Rogan's podcast, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> oh, that's the, staying in. <laughs> the, the powers that be decided that instead of asking them for money, which they didn't have and they couldn't get and weren't going to get and was only going to upset them that we wanted it, what we did was we went over there with our money and said, listen, he, he, you know, we, we wrecked your factory. We're sorry we had to, but let's move on. We'll give you some new machines. We'll give you some new directions, some peacetime directions, and uh, we'll have you go back to doing what you were doing actually before the war and before you were, before your manufacturing processes were were stripped away and turned around and used for the conquest of evil, and we'll have you build cars again because, quite frankly, the pre-war cars that they built were some of the finest cars built in that era, and after the war they started a brand new era of well-built cars, and in fact. Mercedes-Benz was probably at the forefront of that. I don't really think anybody else was as uh, prolific as far as building uh, a finer, a fine automobile in Germany 
and then going racing again. Uh, it seemed like almost immediately they were back on the track. I mean, it's like, okay, we fought a war, we lost, great, let's go racing. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is very much the German mindset. And they wanted to prove to the world. I, I think they wanted to prove to the world that, hey, um, we didn't lose that world war. Yeah, no, as... Yeah, as Germans, we you know we we put in a pretty good effort, and a lot of people were unfortunately killed because of it. But now that the war's over, we're going to show you, that, hey, you know what? Uh, we're really good at a lot of things. Maybe World Wars isn't one of them, but uh, racing and building cars, we're we're pretty fucking good at it. Yeah, absolutely. So the immediate priorities for Daimler Benz AG, which it was known as the time, that is the parent company of Mercedes Benz. Uh, they were really, they got pushed right into making passenger cars, as you said, but the problem was they had so few resources to do it with that a lot of these old race guys, these old race mechanics and these old race car drivers were just kind of milling around Stuttgart, putting shit back together with whatever they had. It was kind of the perfect place to be if you had a car and it was broken. Or, you know, it hadn't had a bomb fall through it, but it needed some work because there was all these people around who could just work on it. Uh, However, the main downfall here for the people of Stuttgart and really every other city that had been devastated by the war was the fact that they had absolutely no replacement parts. And it wasn't like they could just go down to FCP Euro and, you know, hit them up on their iPad and get absolutely every part that they needed delivered to their door, you know, cheap and fast. And, oh, by the way, with a lifetime replacement guarantee. Uh, No, they didn't have any of that. So what they found themselves doing was fabricating and manufacturing a lot of their own sort of what we would consider consumables like belts and hoses and water pumps and, you know, shit like that. They're just making this stuff. I mean, I'll take FCP Euro all day over spending 12 hours to make my own, you know, accessory drive belt that doesn't fit. Yeah, and if you think about it, gentlemen, it uh, and I say gentlemen and ladies, uh, you know, all six of the ladies that are listening to this podcast. Uh, if you think about it, it's very similar to our condition, our situation now where you're a mechanic and maybe you're, you know, working, you work on cars normally and maybe even you work on race cars, but now suddenly you're working on bicycles because nobody's driving cars, you know, it's, it's like our situation now. And so you're sitting around really wasting your talents. And then somebody just says, Hey, let's stop wasting our talent. And they get going. Yeah. Except we do have iPads and we do have FCP Euro and they do have a lifetime replacement guarantee. So I don't have to make my own belts that don't fit out of, you know, pants. Daimler first went racing in September of 1950 with an old Mercedes 170S. And basically, after the war, Mercedes did the exact same thing that everybody else did. They were just reheating leftovers because that's what they had dies for and they had casts for and all that shit. So this guy is racing around the Nuremberg ring circuit in a car that essentially hasn't been updated since uh, 1936. And it's 1950. He didn't win. Yeah, well, <laughs> he, well he you know, and, and like you said too, it did. It happened in the United States as well. Passenger cars did not get redesigned from the 1942 models until very, very late in the 40s. 48, I think, was the first ones that were all new designs. 49s were 
quite a few companies had brand new designs for 49 across the board and then 50 by by 1950 we were back uh, Every, everything was was up to snuff and more modernized and looked completely different than the 42 models the 1942 models that they were replacing but the, you got to remember too that they hadn't sold cars in the United States they hadn't even built an automobile from 1942 early in February until July of 1945 that's when they finally started to actually say hey go ahead and build cars again and so you if you can imagine a, a, a little less than three and a half year period where there were absolutely not one new car built in this country and then all of the demand for new cars that was pent up i mean it was really a, a, a like a niagara falls kind of a deal where you know all of a sudden they you know you had all these people who had all this money from working in defense factories for three and four years and they had really almost nothing to spend them on. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the war's over. They're building cars again, and they bought everything. Every fucking new car built, they they bought them. They bought them. And they didn't give a shit what they looked like because they needed cars. Because some of these people were driving cars that had been built, you know, 10 and 15 years earlier. And they were, well, by this time, they were junk and used up. So so they were they were banging out cars that had been introduced in the early 40s uh they were now buying them in the late 40s and just everything everything was every car out there was not even touched as far as being redesigned for three years they just they were selling them faster than they could build them and they weren't building anything that was any different than what they built in 1942 and then when they finally got around to to building something better it was actually quite a departure um, and it, but if you can imagine uh, in Germany having to rebuild, not only having you know, not only having to uh, redesign and and update and retool, they had to build the buildings again. I mean, they had to start really strictly straight from scratch. There was we, nothing there. There was nothing there. The, the B-17s, the B-24s, and the Avro Lancasters did their job well. They smashed the shit out of all of. Germany's industrial might. They smashed the shit out of it. They got to a point where they started bombing cities, which was a big mistake in retrospect, and just trying to kill people because uh, they, they didn't have anywhere to work anyway. So Yes, but five years later, Mercedes-Benz is back. They're building cars, and they're even racing. And they're even racing internationally, which is kind of interesting as well. In 1951, they go to a race in Buenos Aires, and they pick up a new driver, and he's an Argentinian. He will probably prove to be the greatest driver in the history of Formula One. And they literally just picked him up on a whim in a rally in Buenos Aires. He was supposed to be driving an Alfa Romeo, and uh, Mercedes-Benz came down to him and said, Hey, how about you drive our car? And this bloke, Juan Manuel Fangio... He said, yes, that's the beginning of an important partnership, folks, not between Germany and Argentina. That one had already been established years previous, but the relationship between Juan Manuel Fangio and Mercedes Benz started right there. Now, also in 1951, we got the launch of the first two new post-war passenger car models, the 220 and the 300. 
And the 300 ended up becoming basically the base plate for every epic car they made for the rest of the decade. What was the deal with the 200? It was a smaller or 220, excuse me. Was it a smaller car or was it different or? You know, it was it was just like it was a new version of a Mercedes Benz passenger car. You know, it was just it was just a new one, but it was their first new one. Yeah. And then the 300 ended up becoming the 300 Gullwing, the 300 Cabrio. And the 300 SLR, which won the Millimilia in a record that is never going to be beaten. Really? Yeah, because they can't run the Millimilia anymore because too many people would get killed. Oh, shit. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, this this was this was the old days of the old uh, Italian road races. And the Millimilia was a thousand mile Italian road race. And Sterling Moss uh, drove this 300 SLR absolutely fucking balls out the entire time he didn't even have a proper co-driver he had a a motoring journalist who knew the track because sterling moss had he had never driven the millimilia yeah sterling moss had never driven the millimilia so he picks up this fucking journalist who knows the track and he goes you're my co-driver now that's awesome so so what they do is they take a benz and they get some german or some english guy who's never been to Italy at all ever and they let him go tear ass and around it and an automotive journalist who's been to Italy before is going hey turn left here yeah pretty much and this went on for a thousand miles yeah for it's kind of ridiculous I literally just read a thing about it because Sterling Moss just died the other day and they were they were talking about his 300 SLR and his millimilia record and he drove something like 130 miles an hour on average the entire way for like 10 hours in freshly post-war Italy, yeah, with, where a lot of people walk and ride bikes and stand in the middle of the fucking road, it was great because well. it's it's Sterling Moss giving this interview and he goes, right, so you get there at the line and there's several thousand Italians and they're all in their cars and we were car number seven twenty two, hence the number on the back. So we go and rest assured, twenty miles, twenty kilometers outside of town, there's hundreds of cars off the off the road. Because the Italians just don't know how to drive. Apparently, they would let, like, anybody who had a car, like, enter the Millimilia, and they would all fucking crash. <laughs> so your mom goes to the store to get wine, and the next thing you know, you got to pull She's out in the of Millimilia, yeah. <laughs> five miles out of town because she decided she wanted to race to the store with Sterling Moss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just it just sounds like an episode of uh, Keith Moon's life, you know, where he's in a race and, and everybody crashes and, every, and everybody just laughs about it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the Millimilia in 1952, 200, two 300 SLs were entered and uh, they didn't win, but they had two cars in the top five and they were the only ones to do that, which was a pretty, pretty big deal. And then you said there was like 700 cars plus? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's tons of cars that would show up to the old Millimilia. Like, literally three quarters of them wouldn't make it. Okay, it's a thousand-mile event, but it's not on a racetrack. It's just on some streets in 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 Italy. I, I'm assuming it's around Milan. Is that the, for the, the name of it, or is it from Milan to Rome? Or, you know, I mean, did they? where were they going from and to? I'm actually Googling that right now. Oh, sorry, love. I don't know. It's well, all right. I'm, I'm just, it just seems odd to me that in the, in the early days of racing, uh, guys had cars that were, you know, I mean, not by today's standards, they weren't that fast, but by their standards, they were fucking outrageously fast. And they, they had 
you know, let's let's call a spade a spade. Some of them probably had very dubious racing skills, and then they're out on public roads. Yeah, it's almost like a post-war version of outlaw racing. You know, it's it's yeah, it's awesome. And actually, yeah, Sterling Moss set that record in 1957, so we actually have to go back a little bit. Uh, well, but that's all right. And basically, you know, it was in the same line of like the Carrera Panamericana and the Dakar 1000, you know, really brutal endurance racing that you just put your fucking foot down and hope you don't kill anyone. Yes, but the difference is, too, that those two races that you just mentioned, the Panamera and the other one, what was it, the Dakar Rally, they're typically run through areas of the world where the population is a little bit, let's just say, sparse. Whereas Italy is probably much more densely populated than those two areas. And, oh, by the way, the roads are probably just as terrible, if not yeah, pretty worse. Pretty much. <laughs> and, and there's likely to be more people on them in one way, shape, or form, whether or not they're riding their bikes, walking, or driving some who knows what kind of piece of shit, a Fiat of some sort maybe. Or maybe they're just on the road because they got run over in this fucking race and they're just Pretty a spot much. on the road after a few thousand cars go over them. You know, I mean, it's it just, it's, it's so they don't do this race anymore, I am take it, right? No, it ended in 1957 and it ended with Sterling Moss basically putting up a record that no one is ever going to beat because they're never going to do that again because, oh my God, could you imagine the lawsuits? Well, I mean, they did the same thing at Watkins Glen. I mean, they, they just took a bunch of streets and said, we'll go here, here, and here, and whoever gets back here first wins. And that was the the uh, American Grand Prix for the the very early years anyway, and then they built a track and had the Grand Prix there for years after that, and then eventually it, it has gone away. The track is still there and gets used actually quite a bit, uh, club racing and that sort of thing, and NASCAR goes there. But, uh, I mean, the roots of that race were racing in the streets yeah you know? totally and at, and at any given time some of those guys i've heard these stories from some of those guys that live down there they'll go to the bar and on the way home they'll run the they'll run the old uh grand prix circuit on the way home see if they can beat their time you know i mean it would be like living at the end of english town i said well the bar's a quarter of a mile down there let's see how fast we can get home Oh, 10.82. That's not bad. At 140 miles an hour in the traps? Yeah. Now I don't want to go to bed. I want to go back to the bar again. Try it again. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you're supposed to drive uh, under 20 miles an hour on a pit road, so it would take a little bit a little bit longer <laughs> to get back to the starting line again. All right, 1954, Mercedes-Benz comes back to Formula One. And this is this is pretty much most people agree this is the pinnacle of motorsport. The rules are kind of, you know... They kind of ruin it for some people, but 1954 Mercedes-Benz is back and there's a new formula. So everybody has to start from scratch. You can either have a 750 CC supercharged engine or a 2.5 liter naturally aspirated engine. And it, it, two and a half liters for those of you who are uh, metrically challenged is not a lot. I think it's like 140 cubic inches. It's not... A big engine, but and 750 cc's. I think some of you probably had dirt bikes that had bigger engines, and uh, but hey, you probably didn't have blowers on them either, though. So uh, <laughs> that yeah. is true. Yeah. <laughs> early, early on, I would say that F1 was a, a rather slow-moving proposition, which uh, probably got fixed somewhere in the 60s, if I had to guess, right? No, they were still doing about a buck ninety in these things. It, what? 
in, yeah. in the fifties. Yeah. With with uh with fifties era brakes. Yeah. Drum brakes, skinny tires. They were doing pretty routinely at Silverstone, they would hit hundred and sixty. So it's it's really no stretch of the imagination to uh uh envision some of the horrible accidents that they had. Yeah, we're gonna get to that one in actually just a little bit, but nineteen fifty four we uh, get reacquainted with our buddy Juan Manuel Fangio, and he starts driving mid-season for Mercedes-Benz because Mercedes-Benz entered pretty much right in the middle of the season. He was in a Maserati, and he was doing pretty well. And then Mercedes comes and go, hey, our car actually works. And uh, he goes, bueno, oh, let's fucking do it. Backhanded stat. Oh, that was nice. That was pretty that was, nice. <laughs> well, they fucking Maseratis are typically. I mean, I've worked on a couple two three, and it just then. Eh, sorry. Anyway, if there's any uh, uh, Maserati fans out there, I apologize, but I doubt you're listening because you're probably on the side of the road somewhere. Yeah, Joe Cocker, your uh, your Maserati does 185 when it starts. That's uh, not Joe Cocker. That's uh... so for the remainder of 1954, the Silver Arrows was piloted by Juan Manuel Fangio, and he won the German, Swiss, and Italian Grand Prix, and pretty much guaranteed himself the 1954 Drivers Championship. And he's the only driver who has a Drivers Championship listed with two different cars. Oh, uh, because he jumped teams yeah, in the middle of the season. Yeah, so technically he won once with Maserati. He won twice with Maserati. He won twice with Mercedes-Benz. He wants another one somewhere. I think he won five. Oh, just a little correction for you, too. It wasn't... Who had the... Joe Walsh had the Maserati. And uh, if anybody knows crazy old Joe Walsh, he, uh, he probably did drive his Maserati 185. He was a, a little more of a, a wackadoodle as a musician and a person uh, in the in that business. Full of crazies, he was in the top five. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, it's 1955. And if you're a Brit right now, how are you feeling? You know, you take racing pretty seriously, and you take the Germans pretty seriously, and they just kick the fucking shit out of the rest of the world with a chubby Argentinian dude. Well, you know, uh, post-war Britain was probably one of the poorest places on earth uh, because they had spent a large, large portion of their gross national product trying to defeat the Nazis. And 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 with a lot of help, we all got it done. I say we, all of us, uh, Russians, United States, and the English got it done. But it left England economically crippled for decades many years and as a matter of fact uh little known fact if you look at uh english rock stars from the 60s such as uh mick and keith from the stones and and even pete townsend and and the beatles they were all uh very thin gentlemen even later in life because they were almost horribly malnourished in the 50s as youngsters and it's because of World War II and, and the crippling economic effects that it had on England after the war because they didn't, they didn't get any of the uh, Marshall Plan money that went to uh, uh, Germany and, and other uh, countries in Europe that were horribly destroyed. So uh, in, in England in the uh, 50s, they were, I think they were searching around for an identity and probably racing was one of the identities that they looked to 
to uh, restore their respectability and, and restore their self-esteem. And then you have the Germans coming along going, oh, we can do this better than you as well. And uh, the English are like, you sons of bitches. Also in 1955, you have probably one of the most incredible moments in the history of motorsport. And I say incredible not because it's good, but because it showed everything that was wrong with motorsport at the time. Yeah, and that would the, be... this. Yeah, that single event was, it rippled throughout the entire automotive industry, the likes of which you can't, can't even, we can't even really touch on it here. It was just had very, 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 one more time, very far-reaching effects on the automobile industry as a whole, not just racing, but on the automobile industry as well. They end up, Losing at Monaco, winning at the Belgian Grand Prix, and then there's Le Mans. And they're like, oh, shit, we got to go to Le Mans and we got to go, you know, kick the crap out of everybody because this is part of our plan. This is part of us getting back on top. We need to go out and we need to win races. And it was it was sort of not for them. It was sort of for their country almost. It wasn't it wasn't we're doing this for Mercedes. It's we're doing this for Germany, like we just got embarrassed on a national stage. Let's show these people that, hey, guess what? We still make pretty good shit. I think Formula One is still like that, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a very country kind of oriented sport where, you know. Oh, it's, it's super it's, nationalistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's still, I mean, even to this day, it's still Germany against England. It's still against you know, Lauda Italy. against Hunt. You know, it was, yeah. it's, it's, it's still like that. And uh, But, I mean, back then, I would say in... In the fifties, it had a lot more angst to it, if you could, if that's the right terminology to use, because of the events of the previous decade. I Absolutely. think there was still a lot of anger and a lot of hatred and a lot of, uh, you know, fuck that guy kind of attitude going on. Seriously. Absolutely. And so, but this led to this led to the most horrible accident. It was at Le Mans, right? Yeah, it was at Le Mans. So, in 1955, Mercedes Benz entered three. Mercedes-Benz 300 SLRs. Now, they're coming down the Mall Sand Strait, which is the really long, I think it's 2.6 mile straight at Le Mans. And I mean, in the in the 60s when, you know, it was Ford versus Ferrari, these motherfuckers were going through there at 220 miles an hour. They weren't going that fast in the 50s, but they were getting there very quickly. Now, what ended up happening was Jaguar driver Mike Hawthorne he basically tried to go into the pits because he had been fighting with Fangio. His tires were done. His He was out of gas pretty much. So, you know, he kind of veers in to go into the pits. And then Lance Macklin, who's driving a racing Austin Healey, which sounds like a rolling fucking contradiction. Well, it sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, it really, it really does. And actually, it is a disaster because he veers left right into the path of Pierre LeVay's 300 SLR, which collided with the rear end of the Austin, launching the vehicle into the air. The engine and front axle came away from the rest of the car and flew into a crowd of spectators, and the result was the worst accident in motorsports history, claiming 82 lives and injuring 91 spectators. This was not small bits of car going through this crowd. This wasn't you know, shrapnel. Thing, you know, too, uh, 
I, I, there's film footage of it, and it looks as horrendous as it might sound from the description. This car went up into the air. It seemed like the body came off the frame, and the frame was moving. The, pot, the, the car itself was moving at probably somewhere close to 100 miles an hour. The engine was probably still running, and the wheels were probably still turning as it darted as it as it shot through a crowd of people standing on the other side of some hay bales it was still running and the wheels were still turning as it mowed down and killed 80 plus people i mean you can't the the, the carnage it was brutal it, it the carnage it can't be imagined really and 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 it's on film there's film yeah. footage of it and it's plain to see that the car's chassis and engine Quite frankly, just just uh, it's almost like somebody did a frame off restoration and went out and drove it without a body on it, and then it went sideways through a crowd of people who are unfortunately no longer with us no. because of this. Absolutely and not. This, and this particular accident changed everything. Absolutely After that, everything. I mean, it, it it was it was a it was a bad milestone in the middle of. A country, uh, middle of all these countries, trying to get better after a a terrible war and death and destruction on a scale that no one's ever seen since. And this sort of thing happens and everybody is brought right back down to ground zero and they had to start scratching their head and thinking about things all over again. And we're talking not just about people who race cars or people who sponsor race cars or people who build them. We're talking about car manufacturers as well. In the United States, some of the backlash that occurred was that every single uh, car manufacturer in the United States, Chevrolet, uh, Ford, uh, General Motors and Chevrolet, uh, Ford and Chrysler, and, and some of the other independents that may or may not still be with us, all got completely out of racing. They completely turned their back on racing completely that was they didn't there, there was it was such a horrible accident that they just didn't want to have anything to do with racing and and the fact that this could happen to anybody at any racetrack anywhere in the world and and it changed a lot of uh it changed a lot of things and and the the effects were so far reaching that it really can't even be calculated yeah pretty much and actually after midnight on the night of the accident daimler benz made the decision to withdraw the remaining two 300 slrs from the event as a sign of respect for the victims and accordingly moss and fellow team member simon were recalled to the pits Now, the memory of the disaster cast a shadow over the rest of the season. There was a lot of races canceled. Uh, It was Formula One was actually brought back for the Grand Prix of the Netherlands, which was supposed to happen again for the first time in like 30 or 40 years this year. But fucking COVID-19 canceled it. So there hasn't been a Grand Prix in in the Netherlands since Uh, since the the 80s, since the 80s, since the 80s. Yeah, it got brought back because of the popularity of Max Verstappen. And the Dutch okay. army. Yeah. So uh, they go back racing for the rest of the season. Uh, Moss wins the British Grand Prix at Aintree in a short wheelbase W196R, followed by Fangio, Carl uh, Kling, who was another works Mercedes driver. And uh, basically, England lost their fucking mind because this was actually the first time an English driver had won on English soil. And they they lost it. 
and I think this actually kind of cemented this weird sort of partnership between these very good British drivers and this very good company, Mercedes-Benz. And that'll come up quite a bit later. Well, you know, the thing is with the English people, and, and this is just an opinion of mine, but they have a different sensibility about a lot of different things. Uh, obviously, uh, as far as humor goes, they're outrageous. Uh, they're some of the most humorous people on the planet. Uh, compared to Germans, especially, uh, and and when it comes to, well, and and I mean, the other thing too is when it comes to warfare, uh, and things such as racing, uh, the people of England have, there's no other way to put it. They have enormous balls. They just are ball. They have they have guts. They have balls. I mean, it, it's something that we forget is that during World War II, for a a, a long period of time. From the mid 40s, from the mid 1940, that is, excuse me, from mid 1940 until June of 1941, they were the only country standing in the way of the Germans ruling the goddamn planet. They had signed a pact to to team up with the Russians to kick the shit out of Poland. So Russia was really, literally, an ally of Germany for about a year. France was gone, and the United States. We were busy playing baseball. We didn't give a shit what happened in England. I mean, yeah, some people did, obviously, but. England stood by themselves against the Germans. And what kind of balls does that take? I mean, at the time, the German army and the Luftwaffe were just massively, massively powerful. And they had made an attempt to uh, bomb England into submission. And England just said, you don't know us very well, do you? We have balls. We will fight you on the beach and on the and in the streets, and, and we will not surrender. It's not going. It's not going to happen. And this is an attitude that I think all English people carry with them. They are very resilient. They're very tough, and they have a lot of balls. And when it comes to race car drivers, I think that's one of the things that makes them good is that they they have enormous clanky brass balls. And so you know, whereas whereas some drivers would come into a corner maybe a little timidly and, and use the brakes a little harder. The English just come in and go, let me show you how it's done, love. And boom, right around them, they go, you know? Yeah, there's pretty a, much. There's a very long history of excellent English drivers out there because they have balls. Yeah, they do. They really do. So we're actually going to switch gears now from racing to what was Mercedes doing on the everyday car front? <laughs> on the showroom. <laughs> on the showroom floor, yeah, exactly. And... In 1951, they release the 300, which then becomes the basis in 1954 for probably the prettiest car they've ever made, which we've talked about actually quite a bit because, well, it was a race car. The 300 SL Gullwing debuted in 1954. It was a two-seat sports car produced by Mercedes-Benz, and obviously, the fucking doors attach on the roof. Now... It's 1954, but this thing already had mechanical direct fuel injection, a three liter overhead camshaft straight six, and it was capable of doing 163 miles an hour. Yeah, I believe that the the Gullwing Coupe, the Mercedes Gullwing Coupe, is probably one of the finest machines ever built. I can't disagree with that, yeah. I, I think if you know if an alien culture came down here and wanted to learn about us, and they said, and, and maybe it's years in the future, and they go, what what was this whole deal with uh, with the automobile? Maybe we don't have them in that time. And they go, well, if you want to get an idea of what the automobile uh, was like back in the 
20th and the 21st century, we don't use them anymore, uh, they would take this car and hold it up and show them. And I think that even aliens from another planet would be impressed with the look of that car. With, with I mean, just it was, and and to think that it came out of a country that had been literally bombed back into the Stone Age is just a, it's 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 a modern marvel, really. It was and nine it, years it, after the end of the war. The SL was on, was in people's garages. I mean, even the Japanese, it took them a way lot longer to start building little shit boxes. So, I mean, if that gives you any kind of a uh, any kind of a yardstick to measure the success of the 300 Gullwing, uh, the J- Japanese, I don't think they've ever actually equaled anything like the Gullwing. Uh, but their manufacturing did not uh, rebound uh, like the Germans did. So let's talk about some of the famous people who have owned 300 SLs. Because this is a fun list. Erner von Braun. <laughs> That's the first one that pops up when you search famous people who own 300 SL Mercedes. Werner von Braun. If you're not familiar with who Werner von Braun is, he was a German rocket scientist who basically is, I would say, almost not single-handedly, of course, but pretty responsible mainly mainly responsible for the v2 rocket which was a weapon of mass destruction that nobody had even nobody else on the planet i think at the time had even remotely had an idea about using in that manner uh he did they did and they did uh but we scooped him up after the war via a little program called uh, operation paperclip which is an interesting title uh and he is almost single-handedly responsible for placing uh, a gentleman named Neil Armstrong and another gentleman named Buzz Aldrin on the moon in the late, late 60s. Uh, He was very instrumental in creating uh, NASA, along with, obviously, rocket scientists here in the United States, but they they were able to put a man on the moon with this former Nazi, and uh, he owned one of these 300 SLs. So he, you know, he's a guy who knows what's good and right about Germany and uh, you know despite his Nazi party affiliations I think that he was uh, a person who had good in his heart because he he worked with the uh, he worked with us here in the United States to uh, achieve something that no one even felt was possible even 10 years before it happened have you ever seen those fake historical quotes I haven't uh, oh I'm, there, there is an amazing oh, one. Is it a fake historical quote, quote, what he said? No, no, no. There's a fake historical quote attributed to Werner von Braun that he did not say. But I'm going to say it here oh, because he it always it? makes me laugh. It always makes me laugh. Shoot for the moon, but sometimes I hit London. <laughs> I, I'm in charge of where the rocket goes up. Where the rocket comes down is another department. I think what's, I think what's lost is that... Th- not only did they uh, pretty much invent, uh, you know, uh, the rocket as a weapon of mass destruction, they put it into production and used it more often than I think a lot of people think. They they fired off a thousand or so of those V2 rockets and at one point even aimed half a dozen of them at the bridge that we captured over the Rhine River, the bridge at Remagen. They aimed some V2s at that thing and missed, but they probably... I mean, how terrifying would that be? You're an engineer working on this bridge trying to keep it from falling down, and you see V2s hitting the water or the, the ground around you. 
You're like, oh shit. There would be poo. There would be you know, a lot I, of poo. I used to think all the time that I think my father thought that I should be a, a, a bomb technician, a bomb disposal technician, and not not because he didn't really care about me, although he didn't care about me that much. I think that he thought there was nobody more qualified on this planet to make something stop working than me. So, <laughs> oh, send in the kid. He's got a special talent. <laughs> that is brutal. <laughs> oh, I wrecked so much of my old man's shit. It's not crazy. Oh, it's crazy. It's not funny. So here's some uh, other famous people that own 300s. Uh, Juan Manuel Fangio had one. Okay, so yeah, of course, you know, he probably just went around to the factory and said, hey, can I take that for a test drive? And then he just went home with it. <laughs> yeah, he just didn't come back. Yeah. <laughs> It's like being in a movie and keeping the clothes, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I drive for you guys. Let me the keys. It's like uh, Daniel Craig. He can roll up into... Uh, uh, Aston Martin. Yeah, Aston Martin's uh, factory or their, sh- or their showroom, their main showroom, and say, hey, can I take that for a ride? You're Daniel Craig. You play James Bond, right? Yeah. <laughs> just take it. Just just take it. <laughs> but, uh, hey, the machine guns aren't loaded, okay? <laughs> Do try so, to bring you know. it back in one piece, 007. <laughs> right, OQ. I feel like somebody has to say that to him every time he goes in and borrows an Aston. Well, they, they say that to him every time they hand him something. <laughs> at one point, at one point they had this uh, John Cleese, I think it was, from yeah. Monty Python. Yeah, it's Q. Q. And, and I'm sorry. I love that guy. I think he's funnier than shit. But it, it didn't work in that particular situation because, uh, to me, the, the silliness of Bond movies in the 70s was really – it put me off. I am a big Bond fan. I think a lot of us are. Uh it, it, it just it was too silly in the 70s and and Daniel Craig especially is a return to the seriousness of, of gritty intelligence yeah. work you know i mean it's you know, obviously it's not austin powers and you know it's not the uh, cheeky roger moore james bond you know it's it's a serious business and uh, that's what we i think that i personally that's what i want to see when i go to the movies i want to see something that's really happening and not outra- as outrageous as driving a tank through a city and running over cars and fire hydrants and shit and then making a joke while i'm trying to bag a bond girl you know <laughs> anyway well speaking I of digress. trying to bag has- <laughs> speaking of trying to bag somebody uh sophia loren had a 300 sl oh yeah Anyway, uh, <laughs> Paul Newman had one. Yule Brenner I'm had sorry, one. I got, I got blood rushing to a different part of my body right now. Yeah, I can tell. Bernie Eccleston has one, and Ralph Lauren. So that really actually kind of kind of speaks to your theory that the 300 might be the most stylish thing ever made by human hands. Yeah, it it really is a a, a turning point in the because it really I think it affected car design for many years afterwards as well. And uh, cause people to think of the cars, because if you if you look at American cars at the time, they were uh, they to be honest with you, it, it, with twenty twenty hindsight, we can look back at American cars from the fifties and say some of that shit was just ridiculous. Some of it looked really, really, really good, but it was also. Uh, in our terms today, you know, in the way we look at cars now, very ungodly, impractical, completely impractical. I mean, what's the what's you know they were they were built for style. They thought they had the uh, the mechanics down 
Pat and, and everything was good there. So they made him very, very stylish. And for a, a long time, I'd say, personally, uh, a car's styling was the most important thing going on in it. Uh, and the Benz certainly uh, changed the direction that styling went, and it also changed how, uh, how well it performed mechanically. Because if you've ever driven, I don't know, folks, if, if you've ever driven something from the 1950s and even into the 60s and, and, and well into the 70s, these, these things handle like a marble. They go where they want to go, and they'll stop when they feel like stopping. There's, and you have really very little control over how they do what they do. And, and if you took a driver out of a car these days, Okay, maybe and, and even anything really built these days, and you put them behind the wheel of a '50s, you might want to make sure they have a good will in place. Uh, you know, they have a, a a proper will and testament stored at the lawyer's office because they will probably end up dead if they try to drive something built in those days on the roads these days. They're they're not they're not safe by any any measure at all. And the Benz, I think was a point in time that you could point to and say, okay, uh, cars can be good-looking and perform, and racing needs to get a lot safer. It was a it was a big turning point, and Benz was right there in the middle of it, you know, showing us the good way and showing us the bad way. So the fact that a lot of famous people owned them said that uh, they had hit the mark styling wise that's for sure oh and that's absolutely nothing when we get to the 60s some of the people who end up owning mercedes holy shit <laughs> so the last really big thing to happen to mercedes benz in the 1950s was they added uh, bruno sacco as a designer and he ended up becoming the head designer in 1975 and this guy really made all of the Benzes that everybody loves. There really isn't any other way to put it. This guy made the Benzes that people buy. So let's turn the page. Let's go to the 1960s, shall we? Sure thing. So let's talk oh. the about the year of our Lord, 1963. Yeah, monkey. Yeah, that's a good year. Good year, 1963. Kennedy got domed, and we got the brand new Mercedes-Benz 600 Grocer. And we got the Beatles. And we got the Beatles, yeah. Now, the 600 Grocer, uh, oh, how do I, how do I phrase this? You're either really cool if you own one of these, or you are really fucking evil. There is, like, no one in between. There's no one who's like, eh, I'd grab a beer with them. It's like, I want to meet you, or I never fucking want to meet you. Well, just for some of our fans out there who might be listening to this, grocer is a German word, which means grand. And so it, when you hear somebody say that a car is a you know, 770 grocer or a 600 grocer, what they mean is that's a big fucking car. It's a grand car. Very grand. It's huge. It's big. It's big, big, biggity big. And the 600 actually was, uh, it was put into competition against the Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud, the Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, the Rolls-Royce Phantom, the Bentley S3, and weirdly enough, the Lincoln Continental, Lehman Peterson. Well, I don't know. It must have been like a coach built thing, huh? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I don't know anything about Lehman Peterson at all. Well, you know, a uh, little bit of history here, a lot of 
a lot of vehicles early on were built just as chassis and no body work at all or very little body work and vehicles were sent down the road to a a, a, a coach builder okay and a coach builder would build a body around this chassis for a particular customer to their specs or maybe to some specs that were laid out by somebody else and i'm sure that's what the lincoln is uh and, and it's disappeared uh and it's sad but it's disappeared over the last uh 70 years or so to the point where i don't think you could really find a a, a a company that you could call a coach builder obviously there's people out there that are making uh, limousines and there's companies out there that are making uh hearse you know for funerals and and possibly even uh you know for like uh hotels that want to have a special kind of a limousine or you know that sort of thing uh and so that's and that, but they used to be way more prevalent in in an era gone by and that's probably what that lincoln is that lehman pearson is probably a, a coach building company so well and at the end of the day it was a lot easier to do with body on frame cars that's the thing that we got to remember here it's hard to do with a unibody oh it can be done though oh uh, it can be done can, yeah you'll actually find uh some companies will sell you a section of of a car that they built in the factory that, you know, I mean, it's the center section of a car, but it's all just sheet metal and you can buy it from them. They probably have to set up the, mach- the, the, the robots that weld it together a little bit differently, but they can certainly do that. Maybe they'll knock out maybe two, three, four, five hundred of these sections. And then if you want, you could buy as many as you wanted, seriously, weld them all together. You know, if you do it professionally, there's no reason why you can't. And then you make uh <laughs> you you make a frame to fit the fucking thing on and hopefully you you uh make it heavy duty enough and you hand you put truck axles underneath it and and away you go with it you know it's uh and it and you've got a limo that holds uh an entire uh an entire bachelorette party for a for a kardashian or something you know <laughs> yeah so the 600 you could get it in a short wheelbase a long wheelbase or a limousine which was called it, a pullman yeah, model it, it, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, here's a list of people who have owned them. And I'm going to go crazy through. Too. This yeah. is a crazy, crazy list, ladies and gentlemen. This is this list goes on and on. And it's awesome. <laughs> All right. Let's start off with uh, one of my favorites. David Bowie. David Bowie had a 600 grocer. A lot of rock stars. Lot of, yeah. A lot of rock stars. A lot Bowie, of rock Captain. stars. Uh, Elvis Presley had one. That's not really too hard to believe. He had a lot. George of Harrison. George Harrison had one. Uh, speaking of Beatles, you know, uh, and, and George Harrison was the kind of guy who didn't really like to be too flashy. But apparently, when it came to automotive purchases, yeah, flash, uh, not being flashy went out the window. Uh, and not to be outdone, Lennon had one. So half the Beatles had had these things. And of course, we have one of your personal heroes, Hugh Hefner. He had one. Yeah, and Pete Townsend. And, Jay uh, Leno, oh, Ronnie Ronnie Wood, who uh, you know, I mean, if uh, if you're a Stones fan at all, you know who Ronnie Wood is. Rowan Atkinson. Ah, oh, Mr. Bean had one. Fuck yeah, oh, dude! He's shit. a huge petrol head. If he's listening, I I want to say hi, hi, Mr. Yeah. Bean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> S- same here. Hello, Rowan. Thanks for listening to Grease the Wheels. We hope that uh, whatever parts you're buying for a Range Rover fit. 
We're you're sorry fucking, about that Buick motor that they got from us. Oh, <laughs> uh, your your fucking working black adder is still some of the funniest thing ever put on TV. Like, still. <laughs> but no, uh, wait a yeah. second. Wait a second. Karen Carpenter had one. What did she need one for? She never brought groceries home. Oh, come on. <laughs> that joke told itself. Holy shit. Ringo Starr had one, too. So every one of the Beatles had one of these except Paul McCartney. And he probably has one now. Well, he he might. I, who knows if he has enough money left after. Uh, oh, yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson. He's got one. He's one of our heroes. We like we like Jeremy. He's just he's just. He doesn't give a shit if anybody likes him, but we like him. So yeah. <laughs> and Jay Leno had one. Jack Jack Nicholson had one. I wonder if he opens. What if Jack Nicholson opens the door a little bit when his wife's sitting in the car and goes, "Here's Johnny." <laughs> <laughs> so those are the cool people that have had six hundred grocers. Wait, wait, wait. You Hefner had one. You suppose his seats were Scotch guarded? Oh. Oh come on, man. <laughs> that joke tells itself. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, but then you got some badass motherfuckers who had them. People that probably should be, well, dead or killed. Y- yeah. Uh, let's start with uh, F.W. DeClerc. Uh, he he did some damage out there. Idi Amin. He had one. Uh, King Khaled of Saudi Arabia. I got to be honest, dude. Those Saudi princes, they have fucking awesome taste in cars. I hate it when they, like, dip them in gold. But the actual cars that they have are phenomenal. Apparently over there, if they have like any kind of car and it stops working, they just walk off. Yeah. They just leave it. They're like, oh, whatever. You know, I'll get another Lamborghini tomorrow. Yeah, I'm going to start a towing company in Dubai. And I'm just going to like put mechanics liens on shit real quiet and end up with like a fleet. So uh, who else would you not want to run into that owned a 300 grocer? Uh, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un, Leonard Brezhnev. That's Oh, I don't know about Brezhnev. He was yeah, a he wasn't so bad. Russian guy. He wasn't so he bad. Wasn't, he wasn't a bad guy. Uh, what about Ernst Blofeld? We're talking about the real Ernst Blofeld, or we're talking about the... the, uh, the the actor who played him. No, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about the character. He uh, he had one okay. in Octopussy and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, that's right. And I then he was in both of them. Yeah, and then actually uh, a shout out to Amazon who does all of our uh, web hosting for some of our other stuff. Six hundreds are seen in several episodes of Amazon's original series, The Man in the High Castle, support- transporting Nazi officials. And that's obviously the Amazon show about uh, Hitler and the Japanese taking over America at the end of World War II. A lot of badass people own these things. Yeah, typically, uh, if you own one of these, you can either get a table at any restaurant you want or call in an airstrike. Or buy it. Or buy it and then call in an airstrike and then claim insurance on it. It says that Pablo Escobar had one. Pablo Escobar did have one, and his actually did get blown up on a raid on one of his compounds in Medellin. Fucking sweet. Yeah. Saddam Hussein had one. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And the Pope. The Pope, of course, I doesn't say which one, but, uh, I mean, you know, they, they usually don't. They you, the, the way they stop being the Pope is by dying. So uh, does it get passed down to the next one? Yeah, actually, the, uh, the papal 
uh, vaults have all of the papal transports over the years in them, and some of them are crazy. You got a picture of one here, right? Yeah. Did they make the Pope mobile out of one of them, or did they use something different for those? No, they 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 still use Mercedes, but they don't use uh they don't use the grocer anymore. No. Part of it, well, partially because it only got about eight miles to the gallon. Mao Zedong had one. Holy shit! And yeah. Nikolai Ceausescu, he's a he's a fun he's a one. rotten fuck. Oh my god. There's probably somebody standing on his grave right now, taking a large piss on it. Who else do we got here? I mean, this is really. Uh, quite a list of people. He, I mean, he was a fun one, too. Ferdinand Marcos had one. What if they had a little... Uh, what if the trunk was big enough to hold all of her shoes? <laughs> all the wife's shoes. So, also in 1963, we saw something completely fucking different than the 600 Grocer. We saw the 230 SL Pagoda, which is another one of those small Mercedes Benzes that's one of the prettiest things I've ever seen. Really? Oh, it's gorgeous. It's this little roadster, and it's just... GQ actually called the uh, the 230SL Pagoda the car that made Mercedes as sort of a really? style and fashion icon, yeah. And uh, here's sounds the... sounds like the name of a Chinese restaurant. No, no, I know, but uh, Pagoda actually refers to uh, it being roadster. And then there was quite a few people who owned that, too, as well, huh? Yeah, a lot of cool people. Uh, Tony Curtis, John Travolta, Kate Moss... Sterling Moss, and weirdly, uh, Colin Powell has one of these. I understand that Colin Powell has very eclectic taste in vehicles. This one, this one seems to stand out, though. Like even even from that. Yeah. Now later in the '60s, you got the uh, the debut of the S Class, 1965, the Sonder Class, and basically what an S Class Mercedes has always been. An S-Class Mercedes is the car that normal people are going to be buying in about 20 to 25 years because they are loaded full of technology and they're comfortable and they're fast and they're powerful. The S-Class has really been a preeminent getaway car for kind of a while. It's a good car. It's a that that's what ends up being in you know your c-class in 10 years or your hyundai in like 30 so it's almost like their test bed model yeah it's it's very much the equivalent of the bmw 7 series it's the exact same idea yeah is that still the way it goes with the s-class is that that you know any kind of new technology comes out on that kind of vehicle yep because i know they have s-class the cars now right still yeah yeah they have s-classes now and they are insane yeah. <laughs> is that a top of the line model? Is that what that is? That is the most expensive Mercedes that you can get. Is the yeah, S class? I'm showing my ignorance here now. Yeah, a little bit, but that's okay because uh, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit because the Grocer was sort of the forefront of the Maybach brand, and the Maybach is now the top end version of the S class, or it was for a few years. I think it's actually, I think that brand is gone now. Or no, yeah, it comes. It, it comes and goes. It's so weird. It comes and goes. Yeah, that's what I was just gonna say. I, I you know, it, they, when they want to wield out something new and different, then they, you know, they, they do a Maybach version of it. Yeah. Also, in the '60s, we had the 300 SEL 6.3, which was a limited edition rally car. That was, uh, it was about two tons, but it had 300 horsepower, so they went rallying with it, and that was very short-lived. 
Two tons with 300 horse. Just sounds almost like a muscle car. It, it very much was a muscle car, and uh, they decided, you know what, let's put some chunky tires on it and uh, go rallying. Yeah, because in the mid-60s, the, the whole racing thing that a lot of the manufacturers had distanced them the distanced themselves from in 55 after that horrible accident at Le Mans a lot of car companies started coming back to racing uh and and that fueled the whole saying that if you win on Sunday you sell on Monday uh and you know with people watching racing and seeing a certain make or model of a car win a race that Sunday uh that that caused them to want to go to the showroom on Monday and possibly buy that car uh, I think, you know, the emotions that are stirred up when you race something are, are crazy, not just for the drivers and the teams of mechanics and, and owners that work on them, but the people who watch them and follow those. I know that you're a very big F1 fan. I'm not so much. Uh, I, personally, I think because of my uh, poor mental health, I don't really enjoy the fact that people beat the crap out of cars, but I'm, I'm alone with that feeling. Uh, I think a lot of people love it when people take a car and use the piss out of it, whether it's them or somebody else or somebody more famous than them or somebody who's better at it than them, you know? Now, later in the 60s, you start to get the modern version of Mercedes-Benz, or at least the modern version up until a couple of years ago. With the Mercedes-Benz W114 and W115 models, you got a series of executive sedans and coupes. And this is their bread and butter. They are selling to the executives. These are more expensive cars. 1969 saw the introduction of the Bosch DJetronic fully electronic fuel injection system into the 250 CE, which was the first Mercedes Benz to use a system. And it it quickly proved to be one of the most reliable things out there. I mean, these 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s Mercedes Benzes are regarded by a lot of collectors as some of the best vehicles ever made because they were simplified and they were kind of homogenized a little bit, but they were very, very well put together. I mean, you know, the company was started by gunsmiths and we've said it before and we'll say it again. When you're a gunsmith, you have to be pretty fucking precise. And when you're pretty precise and that translates over you get very well put together cars. Yeah, it just speaks to their uh, exacting standards. I mean, you're going to build something, build it right. Don't F around. Going through the 70s, it was more of the same of the 60s, but just with more, just more stuff added to it. I mean, they, they added, uh, they added self-leveling hydraulic suspension like you had in the Citroen to their top end S-Class models. You had the whole uh the 6.9 liter v8 which it was it was just more v8 for them i mean 6.9 liters to an american in 1970 is like pff, what's wrong with it you know yeah six, <laughs> 6.9 is about 440 cubic inches and we know from our american history that we had 440 mopars and we had 455 buicks and oldsmobiles and pontiacs and 454 chevys and and at one point cadillac had a 500 cubic inch engine which i think equals out to about 8.4 liters so yeah as far as you know bigger is better uh, i think that that was the that was was that the that was the pinnacle but yeah so uh that that was actually a seriously sophisticated engine at a time where 
uh, R440s were not sophisticated at no, all. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, well, if they had fuel injection, then yeah, because, I mean, we ran carburetors in the United States on many, many engines up into the mid-'80s when uh, fuel injection, and even even the fuel injection that they replaced the carburetors with was basically half a carburetor with one fuel injector. <laughs> and it was, no, I'm I, dude, if you've ever seen them, uh, they called it throttle body injection, which is like a very fancy word to say, hey, it's still a carburetor, but it squirts the fuel in with an injector. Yeah. And it was a, a total, it was an honest to God batch fire thing that, you know, I mean, it, it threw cylinder into, it threw, <laughs> it, excuse me, it threw fuel into an engine and where it went, they didn't give a fuck, you know. And, and it just added air, and, and that's all it did. And, and actually, it, truth be told, it worked pretty well. Um, it's not doable now. The emissions control uh, standards that we have in place would never allow us to have a carburetor again. It uh, would never allow us to have throttle body injection again. Uh, it really, with the standards we have in place, you need fuel injection. You need precisely metered fuel you need precisely calculated air, you know, airflow, and and even the exhaust is monitored uh, to the nth degree. Everything needs to be much more precision, and and even then, they're changing the timing, they're changing the overlap, they're changing everything, and it's for the better. And this is where those things start when you get a company like Mercedes-Benz messing around with uh, V8s and uh, other assorted engines it, it has to start somewhere and this is this is basically where it starts you don't get a 707 uh horsepower dodge charger or a hellcat without some of these uh innovations some of these uh procedures that are put into place by mercedes-benz because i, I i'll be honest i'll be honest with you even a, a, a regular 426 hemi uh like you would have in like a a, a 70 dodge charger you're not going to make 700 horsepower on that and be able to drive it to the store and pick up milk and bread. You're not going to be able to do it. But with the things that a lot of, the, and I, you got to give credit where credit is due. I think the Germans came up with a lot of these, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of these engine uh, inventions and a lot of these engine innovations that allow us now to get incredible horsepower and incredible torque and incredible mileage and and good emissions out of an engine such as such as that and so we owe them we have we have a debt that we, you know we have, we owe them a debt of gratitude they were able to to put into works to put into the works all of these systems that ended up making uh, these really th- the most exciting times to to be a new automobile buyer and owner than ever before I mean, there was, you know, I mean, think about think about the Hellcat with 707 horsepower. In 1969, I think the most horsepower you could get out of anything was 400. And that was a wild-ass piece of machinery with solid lifter cams and dual hollies. And, you know, if you toss the keys to your mom and she wants to go to the store, she might not make it, you know? <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. I mean, how, how do you... You know, you can, you, you think about like a a 302 version of a, of a Z28 Camaro, you know, with this lumpy ass cam and this big holly carb on it, and it's all they're all sticks, they're all four speeds, you know, 
and your mom climbs in and goes, where does it say drive? <laughs> you know? And now, now you could toss the keys to your grandmother for your Hellcat and, and she could drive up to the store or she could drive uh, halfway across the country in the goddamn thing. It's comfortable and it's quiet. It's got air conditioning. I mean, these innovations started with companies like, like Benz. They don't get all the credit, but they get a large portion of it. Yeah, so the big, which was the, uh, the it was actually only 6.8 liters, which roughly works out to about 417 in terms of cubic inches. It was it was a single overhead cam, as I was saying, uh, sodium filled valves against hardened valve seats and each hand built engine. They're all hand built. They were bench tested for 265 minutes, 40 of which were under full load. They used the Bosch Kjektronic electromechanical fuel injection uh, which was standard for them but nobody else and it made 286 horsepower at 405 foot pounds of torque well the K-Jetronics is actually uh, very well known throughout uh, German car manufacturing it was used on a lot of BMWs as well because we had uh, several uh, tools that were uh, auto shipped to us as a dealer for working on cage electronics. So yeah, basically the only maintenance that you had to do to the big because it had a dry sump was you had to change the oil every 12 and a half thousand miles, but it was almost completely maintenance free for the first 50,000 miles. It just fucking worked. I mean, it's super complicated, but it, it just worked. You know, they just put it all together absolutely perfect yeah this is the thing with cars nowadays eric is that uh uh we we really we really are experiencing in i would say within the last 20 years or so cars that are really really don't need a lot of maintenance and also don't fail on a regular basis i'm telling you and i've, I've talked about this before on the podcast is you have cars if you had a car in the 1950s you had to spend your saturdays working on it to keep it going if you wanted to get back and forth to work every day uh, for the next week on Monday through Friday, you had you had to go in and you had to adjust things like the points. You had to change the oil, and you had to change the oil in the oil bath air cleaner. I mean, it was shit like that. It was very maintenance heavy. It was very, uh, you know, what's the term I want to use this? It was arduous. It, was, it sucked. It was. It, they required a shitload of maintenance. And I'm telling you that a lot of people who are alive today would fold and, and just end up walking if they had to perform some of the maintenance that had to go on really almost on a weekly basis on some of the cars built in the 50s. And in the 60s, we started to get away from it more, and it's because of companies like Mercedes-Benz that designed in a, a greater level of reliability, a greater level of, of precision where they required less and less maintenance. And we got it down to the point now where people feel like and it's not true, but people feel like automobiles are maintenance-free when they're not. And, and and I see lots of people run into trouble with that. They don't they don't think about it like we used to. We used to have to think about it on a very, very, very regular basis. And because of the innovations that come out of people like Mercedes-Benz, we don't have to anymore. And some of us don't at all anyway, And which is good for me as a technician because, you know, if, you, if you're not going to change the oil in your car, sooner or later it's going to want to change its own connecting rods and, and shoot the pistons out the bottom. You know, I mean, you, you, you ignore a car and what it needs 
it will remind you of its needs in the most catastrophic manner possible. So don't ignore your maintenance, but uh, you can kind of put it off a little bit, and that's because of innovations from, from Germans, a lot of different German manufacturers, and from, from Japanese manufacturers. They have the whole maintenance thing down to uh, a bare minimum now. And, uh, and American manufacturers have followed along in suit pretty much, uh, and all because they, they, they don't maybe don't maybe they don't share technology, but the technology does get shared. Believe me. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, Corporate espionage times, is a real thing. <laughs> well, a lot of times when when a company like Mercedes Benz puts out something new, and it's not been seen before, some of the first buyers that line up to buy it are uh, General Motors and Ford and Toyota and Honda, and they go, okay, what makes this so much better than what we got? And then they go and they go, ooh. Holy shit! Why didn't we think of that? So you know, you only you are only going to be the 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 only kid on the block for a short period of time, and then somebody else is going to see what you're doing, figure it out, tear it apart, reverse engineer it, mic it up, and then add it to their own car. Pretty much, it yeah. all the time. So if you think for a minute that you know the company that you work for invented this one particular system on a car, they may not have, and if they did invent it. Somebody else was going to be using it 15 minutes later. Trust me. So, uh, and, and and I think a lot of stuff gets stolen from Mercedes Benz. Oh I got, yeah. I just got to be honest. I got, oh I my god. Yeah. A great deal of stuff. I think a great deal of. St- I, it, but I think they all know that too. Yeah. And I mean, if they don't, then they're just idiots. But I mean, when you build something as solid and as quality and as dependable as Mercedes Benz, other people go, "How can we do that?" And then they figure it out. The problem that they have is that they'll try to tech. They'll they'll copy the technology completely, but the process to create that technology in that form, the manufacturing processes, they can't they can't necessarily copy that so easily. Yeah, well, replicating somebody's manufacturing process is a lot of times going to involve an expense, which uh, and and you know you've heard me rail about accountants many many times, but if you try to do something that somebody else does cheaper. You're going to fucking fail. I'd say probably 90% of the time you're going to fail. A lot of times manufacturing, especially when you're talking about something that's been invented and built by the Germans, they don't typically mess around when they design something and when they engineer something. Where they run into trouble is when the accountants get involved and say, we can do it cheaper if we just do it this way. And an engineer is going to, he just shakes his head. But he, and you can't fight that. There's almost no fighting that. That's why I think if, if an apocalypse truly comes that you should go out and find an accountant and chop them up into little bits and make stew out of them because seriously, they're the ones that are ruining everything out there. You know, it's sometimes it's not about money, okay? Yes, they want to make a car cheaper so that more people can afford to buy it. And it's important that that does happen. But in some cases, those motherfuckers don't know what the fuck they're doing or what, the, what they're talking about. And they want you to make connecting rod bearings out of something other than what the engineers stated stated that they should be made out of and then you know 60 70,000 miles down the road this thing's puking out connecting rods because you used some kind of shit material to make the, the bearings you know it's something and we're we're all familiar with that we're all familiar with that i mean any ask uh, ask a bmw technician who's had to try to screw together one of those goddamn N63 V8 engines that they've been building now for about 10 years, which they should have stopped about seven years ago because so many of the materials on that vehicle, on that engine, which is in a lot of stuff that BMW builds, just as an example, a lot of the stuff in that thing is a compromise between cost and 
and the standards that, that need to be in place to make that part work successfully. And so there's lots of us out there who have spent a lot of time taking these things apart, checking this, that, and the other thing, and then in many cases replacing the entire engine and hoping that the new engine has, you know, updated materials and updated processes in its manufacturing and updated uh, components that are attached to it to help it enjoy some longevity. I mean, it was such a problem with that one particular engine that there was actually a, a class action lawsuit which forced BMW to peer into the Wayback Machine and go, yeah, we shouldn't have done it that way. And, and, and almost every time, even with Benz or, or Audi or Volkswagen or any, any of these people out there, when they look back and they see that something didn't fucking work, they can point to an accountant or an accounting department somewhere that said, geez, we should try to make that cheaper. Yeah. That's just my opinion. Um, there was absolutely the- none of that, though, when it came to the Mercedes-Benz W123. Uh, and this is probably the one that has the broadest user base is the w123 it was started looks like they made it for a long time yeah very long time 11 years uh november of 75 to january of 86 and it became a major hit because of its very modern look but it took them a while to build these cars and actually there was a very famous piece that some of the higher end mercedes at this time were actually being built by porsche so if you really want to talk about something that is Basically indestructible, a Mercedes-Benz from the 70s built by Porsche. It's a pretty good place to start. And uh, actually, what ended up happening because of the demand for these W123 cars was a black market emerged uh, for customers to try to get the cars for immediate delivery. And it ended up uh, increasing the price on these cars about 5,000 Deutschmarks. So that's, that's actually quite a bit. Like its predecessors, the W123 gained the reputation of being over-engineered, well-built, durable, and reliable. And actually, uh, because of this, a lot of taxi companies picked these things up. And uh, once they would reach about, you know, half a million or a million kilometers with, you know, really barely even being broken in, they ship them off to Africa and uh, sell them there because they can't get enough of them because they're so fucking tough. Yeah, you know, I've I've stomped a few junkyards, and I don't, you know, it, you know, you just don't see them in junkyards, even, you know. No, they've all been picked over by fucking hipsters who are trying to save twelve dollars on, you know, replacing <laughs> something that they have no fucking idea how to fix, but they watch the YouTube video so they can do it, even though they don't have tools. I love it. I really do. But yeah, they ended up selling. They ended up selling 2.7 million of those fucking things over 11 years. And that is the car that absolutely cemented Mercedes-Benz as this unbelievable, uh, you know, reliable, mechanical vehicle. You know, it's, it's very mechanical and they are easy to work on. I know a couple of people who actually make a living uh, fixing these things in areas like Portland and LA and um, they're scalping the shit out of my generation, but you know what? That's okay. Cause good. Yeah, no, (laughs) no, I agree because what ended up happening with the 300 and this is what pisses me off is hipsters say, Oh, these are cool. And then all of the hipsters go out and buy them and it drives the fucking price through the roof. 
I mean, we're talking like E30 taxes on cars with a million fucking miles on them, you know, but Mercedes in the 70s, they were very utilitarian and over-engineered. And this actually came out in another vehicle that debuted in the 70s, the G-Wagon. The G-Wagon. I can almost picture Rommel driving a G-Wagon. Dude, I love the G-Wagon so much. It's yeah. it's like, and I, I don't like the super posh ones with the AMG engines. I want a diesel one, early 80s, like, diesel one. And, uh, you know... The G-Wagon was just such a weird, just, just a weird story. You know, oh, the, uh, the Shah of Iran needs a new military, like, transport vehicle. And he owns a piece of Mercedes. He was a, he was a Mercedes-Benz shareholder at the time. So they just fucking built him the G-Class. Like, here you go. And then everybody else wanted one. Pretty much. And actually, uh, that was the first Mobile. Oh, really? It was the actual Pope mobile was a G Wagon. And that is. Uh, so they have protection versions of it where they have uh, bulletproof glass and shit like that? Oh, yeah. they. Oh, yeah. On, on any high end Mercedes, you can get pretty much anything armor plated. It won't come like that nice. from the factory, but you send it to a company and they, they armor plate it and they replace the glass with bulletproof stuff. Stuff like that. So that's pretty much it for the seventies. The seventies were uh, the seventies were really good to Mercedes Benz. They made a lot of really really good cars that are still on the road. There's there's still a lot of these out there. The uh, the one two three and the one one four and the G wagon. They still build a G wagon. Yeah, they do. Yeah, but now instead yes. of now instead of this like utilitarian you know Humvee looking thing, it is the most posh. Thing with four-wheel drive that you can buy. Well, yeah. The, I mean, they even had to do that with the Jeep. I mean, Jeeps are like that. Yeah, and Land Rovers. And but it's Hummers. like the Jeep. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's it's just something that just keeps going on and on and on. So then in the 80s, uh, Mercedes-Benz actually starts to get some really heavy competition from Audi. And they decide that, you know what? It's time to go racing again. But we're going to go and we're going to compete in the German touring car championship. And they did this by uh, teaming up with Cosworth. They went back to Britain to, to figure out how to make their ordinary family saloons faster. Well, Cosworth had just come off of putting their engines in Vegas, so they needed something they needed something to make people forget that whole abortion. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was silly. Yeah. You know, think about it, you know. Hey, I built, I built really high-quality race engines. Chevrolet's on the phone. Yeah, what do they want? They want to put a Cosworth engine in a Vega. Did you hang up on them? Nah, I thought we could use the money. Well, I mean, that's the thing with, you know, small British engine manufacturers. They can pretty much always use the money. <laughs> they're still they're still fairly highly sought after, too. I think they made those. It, what's weird is they made the, uh, the Cosworth Vegas. They made a lot of them, okay? And people think, oh, they're rare. I go, Eh, not that much. You know, I mean, you're talking to a guy who owns one of about 23 uh, W30 Hearst Olds. So rare is uh, a subjective term. Uh, as far as Codsworth Vegas go, I think they built about 5,000 of them. And I'm like, hmm, that's teetering on the edge of rare. So, yeah, I'll give you that. And then a lot of them didn't sell very well. I mean, it didn't make a lot of sense to people to buy a high-performance Vega. It did. <laughs> It still doesn't make any sense to people no, to buy a Vega. It still doesn't, but you see them every once in a while, and it makes well, me happy. No, you don't, well, you don't see. I mean, you 
it, you, you, you don't understand it. You, you, in the 70s, uh, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a Vega. Everybody had one, literally. But now you do not see them anywhere at all. They're, not, they're the absolute antithesis to the uh, W123 because those cars never seem to wear out. And even if they do wear out, somebody comes along and fixes them again. Whereas with a Vega, it was basically a sheet of paper. And when you were done with it, you crumpled it up and threw it away. And so putting a Cosworth engine in it was like just delaying that process by a couple of years is all. And I've seen some of them in absolutely hideous condition that people are like, oh, it's a Cosworth Vega. It's worth $5,000. I go, no, 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 it's not. I mean, unless you're talking about Mallow Cup money. You know. <laughs> it's just, and, and, and I have to say this, I'm going to get, you know, destroyed on it, but I have a Vega. I have a Vega because I'm, I was from that era where Vegas were everywhere. And the big thing was to build and have a V8 Vega. And there's quite a few of us out there still, uh, you know, uh, 50 and 60 year old adolescents who, who want to have a V8 Vega. And so that, that's why that, you know, they still exist at all, really. I mean, if you took every Vega ever built, every Vega ever built was built with a four-cylinder engine. Uh, 5,000 of them were built with Cosworths. The rest of them were all built with this brand-new aluminum-headed iron block. Recycled like, bullshit. <laughs> recycled metal. Yeah, yeah. They were, and, you, and now you take all the Vegas that exist still in the world, and you're going to find it's 50-50. 50% of them have the four-cylinder engine still, and either more than likely it doesn't run, and the other 50% have a Vega that has had a V8 slammed into it. I mean, it's that it was that popular of a swap at the time, and still is pretty popular. I mean, you can I can still I can still buy the V8 conversion parts for mine if I want. Companies have come and gone with those parts, and it's just something that they sell. You know, for Cosworth to pick it up pick up the dice and roll it again and, and go with Mercedes-Benz was probably a very good thing for them. So in the 80s, uh, companies like AMG had gone racing with their stuff and had been actually for quite some time at that point. They actually, they had a decent amount of success in the 80s, but uh, this thing called the M3 came out and, uh, well, that was kind of the end of that. And uh, actually the, uh, the, one, the 2.5 liter 16 valve uh, Cosworth actually went to war against one of its Cosworth siblings, the Ford Sierra RS Cosworth in the British touring car racing. And that was about it for the 80s. I mean, you know, you're starting to get company teams that are using Mercedes to go back racing with their stuff, but Mercedes wouldn't actually uh, re-enter motorsport for another decade. The 1990s, though, really only saw a couple of major things for Mercedes-Benz. Obviously, they came out with the C-Class in 1993, replacing the W123 as their entry-level executive sports saloon. And that was kind of a big deal. And then they made um, a couple of AMG versions of some of their normal cars because they ended up buying AMG in the middle part of the 90s. They started working with them, and then they're like, you know what, we're just going to buy you guys. How does that sound? And everybody at AMG's just like, fucking sweet. We got, you know, we got some corporate money now. Now we can have some real fun. However, 
The biggest hit the Mercedes had in the 1990s came in the early morning hours of August 31st, 1997, when Princess Diana and her boyfriend Dodi Al-Fayed, the son of Egyptian hotel magnate Mohammed Al-Fayed, and their driver Henry Paul collided with a support beam in the Pont Alma Tunnel in Paris, France. I don't got anything to add. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was well, tragic. that's okay. It was tragic, it was tragic. shit. It was tragic as shit, and uh, there's actually quite a bit of conspiracy here. There's not a lot of solid answers, and actually part of the problem here comes from the car that they were driving. Uh, the car that they were driving was an S280 Mercedes-Benz. That's a big, fucking comfortable Benz with kind of a lame engine in it, 2.8 liter straight six instead of a V8 or something like that. Now, the media reported that they entered the tunnel going well over 100 miles an hour, which obviously an S280 is very capable of doing 100 miles an hour. They were being chased by paparazzi on mopeds, allegedly, at the time of the impact. Now, Mercedes-Benz straight up refused to do an examination on Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed's car. They straight up refused. They're like, we are not fucking touching that thing. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Obviously, you know, PR-wise, not the best thing in the world for a beloved princess who, you know, cleans up landmines in her fucking spare time to get killed in your car. Obviously, not a great thing. But what if this was because they didn't want to blow a lid on a royal family MI6 cover-up? There actually is some evidence here. Now... First off, Princess Diana straight up said on film one time that she thought that her family had one of her former bodyguards, who actually ended up turning out to be a lover as well, killed off in an accident on a motorcycle. And they thought that they would do the same to her when she eventually married Dodi Al-Fayed. A, a woman named uh, Jacqueline Bouvier did the same thing. To another she... Benz fan. Well, there you go. I mean, no, I, you know, I mean, it worked out all right for Jacqueline Onassis, Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, and and what her obviously her first husband. She didn't divorce him. He kind of got, uh, well, he took a shot to the head. But uh, so Mercedes didn't really want to know anything about the car. Mercedes didn't want to know anything about it. But one uh, chief engineer looked at the accident and basically said, "Hey, he was going about fifty when he hit." 50? Because if they were going 100 miles an hour, it would have cut the car right in half. And that's his words, not mine. Yeah, if you're going to hunt, obviously there's a big, huge difference between 100 and 50. And and how fast do you have to go to outrun a fucking moped anyway? Not very fast. That's, you know? that's the problem. Now, there was one more person in the car, and he actually survived. Well, what did he say? How fast did he say they were going? He he couldn't remember. <laughs> Obviously, he had some he had some memory issues, but he said that the last thing he remembered a bright flash and a loud bang in the tunnel. Now there was another witness who was on a, who was in a Fiat Uno behind uh, the accident who actually had seen most of the accident, and uh, guess how he ended up. Right before he was going to testify about what he saw. Yeah, he did a little Billy Batch number where they stuck him in a trunk and shot him a couple times or something. Yeah, he was uh, he was found in a burned out BMW 3 Series, shot in the back of the head twice with the keys locked outside of it, 
and it was ruled a suicide. Yeah, it's a little little tough to shoot yourself in the head twice, or to yeah. shoot yourself twice. And this is such a crazy conspiracy that you know the royals killed off Diana, but there's kind of some pretty decent evidence to support that none of the assumptions that were made by the media are correct. The car was not going 100 miles an hour. It wasn't. (laughs) It was going maybe 50. Did they survive the accident? Was Diana strangled after by by an SAS member on orders from the British Crown? We don't know, but everybody who would know is dead or can't remember because they got their head bounced off the 13th column Aunt Elma. But what I don't get is the motivation. I mean, is it is it would it be such a horrible thing for these fucking these highbred, you know, highbrow motherfuckers to have the Princess Diana, you know, go off and live a life away from them to not be them. I mean, I mean, maybe I don't get how important the the, the royals are in, in England. I don't. Maybe I'm. That's what I'm missing here. I don't get that. I mean, we we discard our royals every eight years or every four years sometimes, and then and that's it. I mean, really, we don't have an equivalent, you know. So it's tough for me to imagine that somebody is going to have a job forever, and there's no matter what, that's it. And and then when one of them gets in, they don't let them back out. I mean, it sounds like the the mob almost, you know. Yeah, but if you think about it like that, that actually really makes it make more sense. They have a ton of secrets all on each other. And if they got out, they would straight up destroy the monarchy in some cases. And I think this is one of them. I think that the idea that the monarchy was so infuriated with Diana shacking up with a Muslim. And and this is actually another part of it. She was probably pregnant at the time because Instantly, when she arrived at the hospital and was uh, dead, they removed her uterus. Why would you do that to a car crash, Vic? What? Yeah, that happened. That that is on record. How can that even be on record? I mean, I mean, if it's they on they record, were... it's in the medical records that she had a hysterectomy. Post mortem. Post mortem. So no, the that whole thing happened. that sparked this whole thing <laughs> was that she missed a period. She had been free from the crown for a while. By yeah, this time, yeah, for a few years. But she's dating a Muslim dude, and she skips a period, and so they feel like that's it. They got to put the kibosh on that shit. And Muhammad Al-Fayed actually has gone on record and saying, yeah, Dodie had just bought her an engagement ring, like, that day. See, the I day was... of the accident. Oh, oh that. So, so, <laughs> so he knocks her up. She skips a period. She tells him he's pregnant. He gets her a ring. The SAS finds out about it. The, the Crown finds out about it. Maybe she even made a call. Say, hey, guess what? <laughs> hey, William, Harry, you're going to have a stepbrother or a step stepdaughter or, a, or uh, excuse me, a half-brother. It makes me love the English so much more. I know. It's awesome. It's like, oh, no, no, we can't have that. Let's kill you. I just think, I just think about the insanity of, like, all of the English rock and rollers out there, and some of them were much more insane than others, and, and they didn't probably even bat an eye at these people but then one of them (laughs) one of their own goes out and decides they're going to live their own life away from them and they can't handle that yeah no that's exactly it because she was one of them what what do you think i mean obviously we're wasting we're not wasting time we're that's all this is that's all this is anyway but what is it she could possibly have known about them that would ruin them you want a list? Sure, why not? Okay, uh, 
Harry is probably not Prince Charles' son. Well, that's really not that uh, hard to... I mean, he doesn't look anything like his brother at all. That's just the start. Like, that's that's the easy one. <laughs> uh, all of Charles's weird sexual, sexual proclivities... Uh, the fact that Prince what? Andrew was in a very well-publicized pedophile ring. She would yeah, probably know that. True. Uh, there's a lot of shit here that she she really could have buried them if she wanted to. And the Fayeds would have given her the platform and the money and the protection to do it. Oh, yeah. They were just a little late with that whole protection thing. Yeah, pretty much. Now, the other big hit for Mercedes-Benz in the 90s was they returned as an engine supplier and part-owned Team McLaren in Formula One. This is Mercedes-Benz back in Formula One in 1995. Nice segue. It was a nice segue. Now, this actually, this collaboration uh, extended into the production of road-going cars, but it only led to one, the Mercedes-Benz SLR McLaren, which... uh, it's pretty rare. It's super expensive. It, for a time, was one of the fastest things anybody ever made. But all those days are long gone. But uh, I think the cheapest one on the internet right now is like $600,000. Damn. Yeah. And uh, Mercedes-Benz and McLaren used their uh, their contacts at Ilmore, which ended up becoming Mercedes-Benz AMG Patronus. It was a Formula One manufacturer... Uh, for engines, they ended up uh, beating probably the greatest driver of all time twice in a row. And they were the only team to beat Michael Schumacher in a Ferrari was Mercedes-Benz. And the worst Mika part was that Schumacher was a Mercedes driver at one time? Yeah, yeah. It, it probably pissed him off because he's like, Jesus Christ, I got, you know, everything's going right at Ferrari, but I keep getting beat by my old team. But then the 2000s happened and Schumacher found another gear and won seven world. Uh, I think he won two before and then five after world championships. And he decided to celebrate by going skiing. Actually, he decided to celebrate by retiring. And then he came back and drove for Mercedes Benz. In the 2010s. Then he celebrated by going skiing. <laughs> then, unfortunately, he celebrated by going skiing. And uh, that didn't work out too well for him. Uh, that's, is he all right now, or is he still kind of effed up? Nah, he's still pretty effed up. Oh, and it's it, it really sucks, because he really, honest to God, is uh, one of my childhood heroes. And, uh, you know. Well, yeah, he won everything there was to win back in those days. He fucking, he did. He, he returned he, to Formula One in 2010 with Mercedes, and he produced the fastest qualifying time at the 2012 Monaco Grand Prix, even though his best years at this point were 20 years behind him. Hmm. And basically what he was doing was him and a couple other big-name geniuses were setting up the car and the team for the new talent that they had uh, sort of cultivated over the years with their partnership with McLaren. Unfortunately, McLaren got him in the divorce, and his name is Lewis Hamilton. That's the one they kept. Yeah, they uh, McLaren kept him in the divorce, but uh, Mercedes ended up getting him back. And listen to the cast of fucking characters that they put around this guy. Okay, this Lewis Hamilton. Young, British, black, cool as shit. 
And uh, these were who he had as mentors. He had, uh, obviously, Michael Schumacher, who was keeping his seat warm and setting up the car for him. And then he had another Austrian. Well, actually, Schumacher's German, but he had an Austrian helper as well. By the name of Nicky Lauda, he was in charge of putting together the team, sort of, for him. I'd say he did a good job. Yeah. I would never call Nicky Lauda anything other than thorough. He was he was a success at everything he did, everything. He even had his own airline at one time. Oh yeah, Lauda Air. Yeah. Yep. He had actually uh, one of the things I saw a program on this at one time. One of those uh, shows uh, why accidents, why why planes go down, and you know, you and I think, I think well, gravity is the answer. Yeah, to that. gravity, lack of lift. You know, uh, <laughs> one of his one of his airliners crashed, and and. They came in to find out why it crashed, and they said, oh, we can't figure out why. And he would not take that for an answer at all. And so he drove, I want to I want to think it was Boeing. It might have been Airbus. I'm, I can't remember which manufacturer it was, but he drove them crazy. He said, no, you have to figure out why this happened. You have to figure out why this happened. And they, they couldn't initially figure out why it happened. And what ended up happening, and I mean, this was after extraordinary and exhaustive research they figured out that a power cable that had been laid in the fuselage next to the control cables had overwhelmed the control cables with emf which is electromotive force and a lot of uh, technicians are familiar with that that's how an ignition coil works and they caused the uh, jet engines to reverse themselves in flight like they do when Get they land. The when, fuck out of here! I'm not shitting you. What happens is when they land, they put the they put the engines in reverse, and they use that to actually stop the plane. They've been doing that for, a, I want to say, probably about 30 years now, because I don't remember them ever doing that before when I used to fly. But uh, lately, they you know they get on the ground and you can hear them. They switch the engines around, and they open up the flaps, and it it, it actually works backwards, and it slows the it slows the plane down. And for some reason, this thing activated that feature on this plane by itself because of the EMF in a power cable laid next to the control cables for the engines. And he made that he made them Nicky Lauda made them figure that out so that it wouldn't happen again because he had like three or four of them, and he he wouldn't even fly them until they figured out what it was. And then they they fixed that. Obviously, they fixed it. And you know how they did it? It's crazy. They took. They, they had a section of fuselage, and they had the wiring running through there, and they knew how it actuated, so they knew what circuits it was using. And what they did was they eventually just took a fucking regular jump box like you would see in a car dealership or a used car lot or even at a parts store, a regular 12-volt battery jump box, and they stuck it on the, on the fucking cable that runs that part of the engine, and it fucking switched it switched because of that. They, they just put power to the outside of the cable, not even in it just outside of it and it went and it shot back and then obviously you lose all of your uh, thrust and you you're I mean if you're not creating thrust your plane will stall because there's no uh, there's no airspeed and if you have no airspeed and you stall at a low altitude you are basically you become dirt it goes down in a hurry it goes down in a really really you have 300 tons being supported by nothing and the one thing, though, that 
that besides thoroughness that the Germans have had, especially with their racing, is their ability to throw a lot of people at problems. Very specific problems. Like, for example, when the formula changed, they they just threw their entire R&D department behind it, and they just have no problem with doing that. And that's why they win. Because, you know, they'll have 3,000 people working on one problem. How do we get the car around the track faster? Yeah, see, that's the thing. That's what an engineer is supposed to do, if you think about it in, in the most basic of terms, is they take and they solve problems. You know, you have a problem where a car, or whether it's a race car or a regular car, or even even people in some cases or certain systems, they don't do what you want them to do. You have a problem, you send in an engineer, and they solve it. Okay, and sometimes, uh, sometimes what they do is is dramatic and solves it in a grand fashion. And sometimes, sometimes the fix is a wire tie. You know, I mean, and we and as mechanics, we do the same thing. We do the very same thing, but we do it on a very very small scale. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I mean, the last ten or twenty years for Mercedes have actually been kind of, I guess, anticlimactic in well, every yeah. other way other than the motorsport because you know they just they're in this pattern now of you know bmw of gm and ford of let's build a car for every single type of person we can think of so they have this huge bloated fucking lineup that is just full of shit i mean i'm sorry but the cla who the fuck is buying a cla really honestly i don't know it's a $25,000 four-cylinder Mercedes. Or not $25,000. I think I think originally when they tried to do it, it, it started off at like, yeah, it was 30 It was $29.99 or something like that. $29.99, yeah. And it's like, oh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a four-door coupe, but it's like the ugliest thing ever made. I hate the <laughs> CLA. I really do. And I hate the crossovers. Mercedes pisses me off more than anything because they have this incredible history of building rugged cars. And their yeah. cars can go anywhere. And their cars can be wagons and beat Africa and do a million miles. But not everything needs to be a fucking crossover. How many times have I said it on this show? I, I can't disagree with anything you've said there. Uh, the whole car buying public has lost their fucking mind. Uh, I kind of doubt they had it to begin with. And and this is it's a cyclical thing. And I can say that to you because I've kind of witnessed it uh, since the 50s. And if you think about the 50s in terms of being an American and... Uh, Thank you, Murray. Uh, if, you think, <laughs> if, if you think about the 50s as an American, you think about uh, what, what comes to mind is the fact that each car manufacturer really literally made one car. Okay. Uh, you take, you take a, you know, let's, let's use our favorite Buick, the 59, and you look at the 59 Oldsmobile and the 59 Cadillac and the 59 Chevrolet. Those cars are basically the exact same car. Yes, they have different powertrains in some cases. The engines are different. The transmissions typically are not. Uh, they, they, at least they at that particular time, they were. But uh, the bodies of the cars used the exact same floor pan. The chassis was the same. 
the powertrain was different. Uh, so, but you still had one. You did not have uh, a small Buick. You you didn't have a mid-sized Buick. You didn't have a full size, and you didn't have a crossover. You didn't have any of that shit. And in the '60s, it kind of started to get away from that whole one car thing because everybody wants something different. And and we realized that uh, a car that one person likes, another person hates. And instead of just building one car and changing the trim, and so that it's you know more expensive or less expensive. They started building a whole different car and then changing the trim on there. And it didn't work out very well for General Motors in the long run because they got into the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and they had, uh, you know, 16 Oldsmobiles, 15 models of Buicks, uh, you know, 14 models of Chevrolets. I mean, we're talking, you know, each one of them had a version of the Blazer. Each one of them had a version of a Cruze or a Cavalier. Each one of them had a version of a, a Vega. Each one of them had a version of a, of a Cutlass. Each one of them had a version of a, of, a, of a larger car, maybe an 88 or a 98 or a wagon. And then, and, and then a lot of them got a version of a crossover. Cadillac got an Escalade. So there was so much different automotive uh, choices that could be made, okay, that they built very few of those. You know, it, the, the thing is, you know, you might build a million cars, but you had to build, you had to have 16 factories to build 16 types of cars to sell a million. Obviously, the profit margin is not there. So it, it eats into your profit margin and your R&D people need to work harder. Your engineers need to work harder. And, and right now, and it's a, it's a weird twist of fate that, that history seems to be repeating itself for people like Audi and Mercedes-Benz and BMW and even Toyota and Honda, that they have to create so many different types of cars and it's going to be their downfall, just like it was for General Motors. Because at GM, do they make Pontiacs anymore? No. Do they make Oldsmobiles anymore? No. Do they make Buicks? Yeah, but they only make like two or three. And then Chevrolet, they, of course, they make three, four, or five of those. But what else do they have after that? Trucks and caddies. Yeah. Cadillacs and yeah. trucks. So they had to trim exactly. down what they build. Instead of, yeah. instead of expanding, they had to trim it down. And I think that this is what's going to happen to... Uh, Companies like Mercedes-Benz and BMW, their their lineup because so expansive that they try and try and they try to appeal to everyone that eventually they will appeal to a lot less people. And uh, uh, I know it's it's especially uh, aggravating for somebody like me. I cut my teeth as a technician working on BMWs back in the early two thousands, and there was what a three, a five, a seven, an X five, and a Z four, and it, you know, early on there was a Z8, you know, uh, and that was it. And I, I think of those days, and I think how simple it was, and, and that's why it kind of, kind of drives me crazy when people bring those cars in and they're all fucked up. It's like, look, these these were great cars. You you have fucked up a great car because you didn't want to take care of it or too cheap or whatever. Same thing's going to happen to Benz. They had a few models, and they have expanded how many models they have, and they they've gotten into the crossover. Uh, world, and uh, it and it's it, it, it's a twin to BMW because now we have an X1, an X2, an X3, an X4, an X5, an X6, and an X7. It is ridiculous how many trucks they build, and the killer part is is that for at least right now, they're selling. They sell them. 
Oh, and do they still have the cars, by the way? They have a two, they have a three, they have a four, they have a five, they have a six, they have a seven, and, and, they, and they even have an eight now. And they have, they have uh, hoard those lineups out as coupes and GTs and, and uh, Grand Coupes. And so they just make so many different cars. And I don't believe, in my, myself personally, that the profit is going to be there at the end of the day to build that many fucking cars different. Exactly. Exactly. I know it must not cost that much to turn an X2, uh, a Mini Countryman into an X2. It can't cost that much. No, and that's a cost-saving feature, I think. I think that's a yeah. cost-saving move. Yeah, well, let's X- look at... Uh, yeah, let's look at some of Mercedes-Benz's other subsidiaries because they had Smart. Oh, I've never, I've never in my life experienced anything that is so wrongly named. <laughs> tell me, Eric. You tell me what the fuck is smart about a smart car? Name one fucking thing that's smart about it. Oh, they can ship a whole shitload of them in a fucking tractor trailer <laughs> truck. Yeah, that's that's smart. I am actually gonna play the devil's advocate here. Go ahead. They're very safe. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. No. Well, dude, they're built by Mercedes-Benz. They don't look fucking safe. They look like a fucking TARDIS with wheels. Dude, you could put a fucking semi on top of one of these, and it'll just chill. Okay. Like, I'm betting you that if I go on YouTube, I can find a, a fucking a, a, a video where somebody actually did put a semi on top of one of them. And, oh, by the way, they extracted the guy with an eyedropper. It doesn't. It's not going to hold not up well. That bet. You got a half-ton car with a motorcycle engine, and you've got forty-four fucking tons coming down the road at sixty miles an hour, and the guy makes a wrong move in front of the truck. I'm sorry, it's not going to hold up a fucking semi truck, Eric. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's just, it just it, to me, it's unsafe because it's just so fucking small. I realize yeah. that in the future. Cars are going to have to be tiny and small because there's so fucking many human beings, unless, of course, the coronavirus does its job well, <laughs> even then. Well, I mean, you know, you think about it. There's 7 billion, there's seven billion plus people on the planet, and if there's a divine intervention anywhere in the world by any god that exists anywhere, he says, wow, that's too fucking many. They need to stop fucking that's so goddamn often. That's just too fucking high. That's too fucking high. There's too many of us. And so things are going to have to happen. We're going to need a world war. We're going to need a pandemic. I mean, at one fucking time, they did straighten out the fucking problems with the population with a world war and a pandemic. I yeah, think it was about 100 actually, years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, it was about 100 years ago. I think it was actually pretty successful. You know, I mean, yeah, from yeah as, a, as a human killing feature, World War One and the Spanish flu, uh, they kind of did their Bash Brothers thing. They fucking went crazy, man. And then and then I guess apparently it wasn't good enough because we turned around and said, oh, wow, we need more babies. Oh, you know how to make them. Boom. So we had World War II, which put the kibosh on about 70 million people all by itself. And uh, the population of the planet was uh, in good shape for about a year, year and a half or so until the baby boom kicked in. I think what really needs to happen is instead of a coronavirus or a world war is... We just need to figure out how to make sex hard. We need to make it, you know. You know all about that, right? Well, yeah, I do. (laughs) So the other major uh, 
Mercedes-Benz subsidiary is AMG. And actually, uh, as a guy who worked in an independent shop, which was called the Little Speed Shop, I imagine you've actually seen quite a few of these AMG-badged Mercs. Uh, there were a couple, but I didn't work on them, and uh, so I really don't have any kind of input on them. I know that they were like a M Motorsport version of the Mercedes, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's pretty much the closest comparison that you could come up with. And uh, and then feed the M car some methamphetamine, and that's an AMG Mercedes. They're kind of bonkers, but they're yeah. bonkers in the best way, in the tire shredding way. Well, the one thing that they do that, that a lot of manufacturers don't do is they sell that the powertrain, the AMG powertrain, to other companies to put in their vehicles as well. Is that correct? Yes, that would be Aston Martin. Uh, They sell the AMG V8 and the AMG V12. And I know back in the day, they used to sell to another supercar company, but I can't think of the name right now. What is it? There's there's some car manufacturers out there, not big ones, obviously, but they... Oh, oh, yeah, you're talking about Pagani. Yeah. Yeah, they use AMG engines. Yeah, Pagani uses an AMG engine. You're absolutely right. I, I'm looking at the notes. I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? I'm not talking about anything that's on your notes. <laughs> no, I know. That's why I was looking I took my glasses it. off. I, like, I can't even see your fucking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. They're shit anyway. No, it's fine. I can read. I can read them. I just... <laughs> you're bouncing through them pretty quickly, though. Well, I mean, we're getting towards the end here. and That's uh, fine. Yeah, we're getting a little loopy, too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, this is going to take some work. Yeah, um, sorry. It's going to be like four hours. Hopefully it doesn't fucking download it as an AU file. So, all right. You know, they have two completely diametrically opposed uh, subsidiary companies, but Mercedes-Benz is also doing a lot of interesting stuff with electric cars. We hear a lot about Porsche. We hear a lot about Tesla. But Mercedes-Benz is quietly sort of playing their game. And uh, over the last couple of years, they've actually put together three factor, or six factories on three continents to build nothing but electric cars and electric batteries. They're gonna call the they're gonna call their electric brand EQC. Yep. Uh, actually, the brand is called EQ, and then EQC is the make. Oh, like okay. mo- I think it could, is the model. Yeah, you can have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Yeah. EQ. <laughs> And actually, you know, I got to be honest, I think if I think if Mercedes-Benz goes balls deep into electric cars, I think Tesla is done. The whole electric car thing is uh, it's suffering greatly at the hands of uh the coronavirus because it, it, when people picture in it, it's just going to be kind of Mad Max like and Maybe even ridiculous, but uh, during this coronavirus, people are trying to imagine how they can do things without certain services available, okay? And so an electric car is one of those things that people look at and go, ooh, do I want to be stuck somewhere with an electric car and have no way of charging it? Do I want to only be able to go 60 miles when I need to go 100? Or, you know, it's one of those things. There's, there's an anxiety, and it's it's got a name. It's called range anxiety, and it's a real honest-to-God thing, and it has hampered uh, electric car sales for 
since the beginning of time, really. A lot of people feel like, well, you know, I mean, if I got to go somewhere and it's 100 miles away and I only have two hours to get there and I take the electric car, I'm going to get 75 miles and then I'm going to have to charge a fucking thing for two hours just to get the rest of the 25 miles out of that trip. It's not really, we've conditioned ourselves to be able to just go to the gas station, jam in a, jam in some gas and just keep going with only a really brief stop. The other thing is, the other the flip side of the coin is that everybody is getting into the electric car market now. Yeah. Because even though gas has hit a dollar a gallon during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, it's not going to stay there. It is not going to stay there. Prices will shoot back up to what we would consider a normal and maybe even go beyond that. And also to... The technology for uh, electric vehicles has made leaps and bounds, and now you get triple and quadruple the, the, the range that you used to get on them. So it won't be too much longer before electric car options become very, very good. They become very desirable, okay? And gasoline and oil-based oil-powered, you know, not oil-powered cars, but gasoline-powered cars, combustion-powered cars are going to put themselves out of the the equation at some point simply because of the emissions that they make and the inefficient way in which they do what they do. I mean, when you run a a vehicle on gasoline, you're only using, I think, 15 or 17% of the energy in that gasoline to move that car, and that's the best they can do. You're wasting a lot of the energy in gasoline, making heat. So, uh, and actually, that's that's what Mercedes Benz is probably going to to take issue, not take issue, but deal with first, because they helped pioneer the kinetic energy recapturing system and the heat capturing systems of the Formula One cars. And I think you're going to end up seeing Kurs units on gasoline on normal gas and diesel cars here in the. No, I already have. The BMWs do it. Oh really? They have a Kurs unit? Yeah. Well, they 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 will recharge. They will if you if you ever drive one. They have a a, a meter in the bottom of the cluster that tells them that that you're using uh, that you're you know the the power is being pro- provided by the engine, and then when you back off, it provides power to the battery. They are they are reclaiming some of the energy. But yeah, I think I think if there is one existential threat to a company like Tesla, which Let's be honest, it operates mostly on hype versus actually building shit. It's going to be Mercedes, because Mercedes builds shit with no hype. And then they go out, they kick the shit out of everybody, and it's like, wow, that was really good. You know, it's like, yeah, we're Mercedes-Benz, you know. We're the best, or nothing. You know, that is something that you mentioned that I never really thought about, but you're right, is there's not a lot of hype to them. They just build quality quality goods, and they put them out there for sale, and they say, hey, you know, I mean, what was the, every Christmas, it's the same commercial where Santa has yeah, the red fucking Benz. John Ham voicing it in a puppy. It's the perfect ad. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not saying that they're great, and they're not even touting their features. I mean, they, they you know, they, all the cars have the same features, you know. I used to get sick and tired of hearing the... Uh, the Japanese car commercials going, "Ooh, wow, we have a backup camera." Well, ooh, wow, it's no like, shit, yeah, that's federally mandated, so. asshole. Yeah, <laughs> everybody has a backup camera now. So that's uh, that's pretty much it for Mercedes Benz. We covered where they were 
in uh, episode one, and we've kind of covered the incredible transformation that they've had as a company and actually as an entire country in Germany after uh, the Second World War. But my biggest problem is I don't really know how I feel about Mercedes. And and this is genuine because I've driven a lot of their new stuff and it's it's pretty damn good. But I've driven a lot of their old stuff, and some of that is fantastic. The, the W123, yeah, it is the official hipster mobile, but that's because it's a really good car. I mean, it's like the Volvo 240. It's, you know, it's just an AK-47 on wheels, and there's parts, and you can get people to fix them. So no. I, I don't I don't really know where I stand with them. My own personal opinion is from the point of a technician. Uh, personally... As an automobile owner and driver, I don't have an opinion of them at all. They don't appeal to me, uh, and I don't have a I don't have a reason why. They just don't appeal to me, um, and I suspect it's the same reason that BMWs used to never appeal to me either until I started working on them. It's because I don't know anything about them, and I don't really care to know anything about them. To be quite honest with you, okay, I don't want to be apathetic to a point where I'm just a a jerk about it. Um, I don't. I don't have any desire to own a Mercedes. If somebody came up and gave me one, I would probably go down and trade it in on a truck because I can use a truck. Uh, but one of the things as a technician that I have noticed about the brand I work for, which is BMW and Mercedes, lumped together really almost almost as if they were one car company. They're not, but almost as if they were one car company, is that anybody who doesn't work on them doesn't want to work on them, Okay. And what I mean by that is if you take a, a BMW to a Chevy garage, to a Chevy dealer or a garage where they work on domestics, they don't want to know anything about it because they don't know anything about it. It's the same with Mercedes. You take a Mercedes to any other shop other than a Mercedes shop and you say you have some sort of problem, typically they're not going to want to work on it. At least the technicians aren't going to. Uh, the management and the owners of the shop may want you to work on it, and they may want to work on it because the uh, perception is that if you have a Mercedes, you have money, which is not always true. It's not always true with any of the luxury brands out there. You may own one, but you might be a broke-ass motherfucker, you know. But if you bring a Mercedes-Benz to the, to the dealer where I work, it is a BMW dealer, and you ask us to fix it, we're going to chafe. We're going to be like, hey, we don't know anything about them. We don't know what they do. We don't know how, how they work. We don't know anything about them. We can work on them because they are cars, and all of the physical properties of cars, all cars, are the same. So if it didn't start or if it breaks didn't work or something like that, we could figure it out. But that's the thing with technicians. Is we don't want to have to figure it out. We want to just guess we want to know, and we want it to be easy. That's one of the one of the major things about technicians is if it's not easy, we're not happy, okay? Uh, and, I mean, that's just the truth. That's calling it out. That's the way it is. Uh, I think every technician in the world is like that. We want it, the job to be easy, and we are pissed off, and we hate it when it's hard. And what makes it hard is when we're used to working on one brand of cars, and we know what they do and how they do it and why they do it, and maybe there's service bulletins that we can access for it, and then we get something else in, like a, like a Mercedes-Benz or maybe even a Chevy or a Cadillac or something, and they're doing something kooky, and we need to diagnose it. We're at a loss, and no technician in the world likes that. No, We don't like that feeling at all. And, and again, I'll say this real quick. If you're working at an independent, you go through this every single day. 
you have to figure out why a car doesn't work or why this system doesn't work or maybe you're just maybe hopefully you're just doing maintenance to a car with a mercedes-benz their systems are different than everybody else's just like bmw systems are different for everybody else like like chevy's and ford's and and even chrysler's are all different to a point so that makes it difficult for somebody who's not familiar with that to work on it now as as far as uh their technologies and the advancements uh, they have done a lot of different things to make cars better all around the world for every manufacturer and vice versa too. I'm sure that there's some systems that they have put into their cars that somebody else developed that make their cars better. Okay. Now, uh, as a final statement, I just want to say this really quick because I don't want to babble on too long. I'm really, really good at that, especially lately. <clears throat> These cars are luxury cars, and they are expensive, okay? That's, that's except with the exception of the smart car, which, I'm sorry, it's It's still not, expensive for what it is. Well, for what it is, yeah, it's, it, I'm sorry, I, mean, I, I just, how I much? How much was my little tyke's uh, uh, Flintstone mobile when I was a kid? I mean, it's the same fucking concept. Well, look alike too. He, yeah, but you're not using your fucking uh, your vans as brake pads. So, <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but when we're talking about Mercedes, we're talking about customers who are more affluent, typically have a, a higher income, they have more refined taste than Eric or I have, and they have experienced Mercedes Benz in one way, shape, or form, and like what they see, like like the way it makes them feel. And in some cases, and this is true with a lot of the luxury brands, people gravitate towards the brand so that they can make a statement about their own worth to other people and maybe even themselves. So you're talking about people who are either aspire to be upper class or are upper class or are of at least in the middle class and doing better than most of the middle class. So it's, it's a statement. It's a personal statement. And uh, a lot of times... Uh, it doesn't match up with the customer. Sometimes it does. So uh, my thing is, is that it really is, honest to God, uh, all bullshit aside, whether whether or not the customer fits this mode or this model or this genre, it, it is a fine car and it does represent, a, it is a status symbol without any question. And it's why, it's one of the reasons why it enjoys some of the success that it enjoys. The other reason is is that it is a quality, well-built car, and and the expense is really secondary to being a, a, a very good piece of machinery. Okay, so let's let's end this podcast right here, saying good things about Benz. Uh, I don't really have anything bad to say about them anyway. Uh, some of the people who drive them, yeah, you know, some of them are some of them are not so good people. <laughs> We've we've kind of we've kind of documented that, uh, but there's a lot of I great just want, people out. I Go just ahead. want a 600 grocer uh, to ride around in, yeah. so it looks like I could call in an airstrike. Yeah, I mean that really, that's that's kind of on the list now. I I wouldn't mind a 600 grocer. Okay, that's you. Yeah, that's me. But, I don't you have know, much. I of like I like big, soft, stupid cars. <laughs> Okay, I'm not going to say a word uh, <laughs> about that anyway. Okay, so so that's our uh, critique, if you will. That's our history lesson on Mercedes, the brand. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of other brands out there that are 
more that are as famous and or more popular and or better maybe i don't know in your mind they might be better uh you hit us up on our facebook page and let us know what brand it is that you like uh or that you are a fan of or maybe that you work for and maybe you're not a fan of who knows and we'll uh we'll give them the uh grease the wheels treatment and uh, or actually and i just thought about this maybe write us a brand that you absolutely hate and just want us to skewer well, because that could be fun too. We can certainly do that. I mean, I could sit here and tell you that Mercedes Benz is a piece of shit, and everyone who drives it is a fucking asshole, and 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 actually sound convincing when I don't have any idea if either one of those are true, because I don't know anybody who owns a Mercedes Benz, and I've never owned one myself. So, are they good? Are they bad? I think that they're very good, actually. Uh, that's that's just my opinion. Uh, they have donated. Uh, so much technology and so much knowledge to the automotive industry as a whole that they're very, very, I think that they're very valuable. It's a very valuable brand to have around uh, showing us all how it gets done and gets done well. Okay. And what I would like to do now is, uh, well, before I sign off, I want to, I want to ask you all to just kind of Give us a comment if you have any, if you don't, okay, that's fine. You can remain silent if you'd like, but let us know what you like. What you don't like, if you like something about Benz, cool. Uh, let us know if you think that Princess Diana was murdered by the Queen. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you can you can chime in, all you conspiracy theorists, if you want. That's fine. <laughs> I have a problem with that. Uh, there might be a conspiracy going on here, but uh, we'll, we'll fill you in on what that is coming up. Just stay tuned for that, okay? It's going to be like an episode of The Twilight Zone, I think. But uh, we want to we want to end this podcast right now, and we always do that the same way by saying, "See ya."